All right. You're you're listening to Seven Cents Live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, and iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook. Oh, and half a dozen other different places. Just go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the least mostest, always with the media screw-up, any <laughs> the radio ticketee. Uh, Curtis will be joining us, my co-host, a little bit later. He had a doctor appointment. Uh, I don't know what was going on with the media, but... Uh, for some reason, my backup sound was not working, and I apologize for those. But thank you for letting me know in the, in the uh, chat room. It may have to do with something with my spilling water all over my notes five minutes before going on air. <laughs> but I'll muddle through it. <laughs> so I'll fly a little solo for the first hour or so. But we've got ourselves a bang-up show lined up. Uh, we have our friend, Ron Edwards. He's going to be joining us at the top of the show. Um, I've known Ron, oh, good Lord, for a long number of years uh, before he even started his own podcast. Uh, and now you can find him up on uh, Tim Tapp plays his Edwards Notebook, as well as listen to Ron on his own show. Um, I believe it's 3 to 4 p.m. every single day. So he's uh, deigned to join us at the first hour of the show. Uh, so he'll be with us. Uh, we have Greg Roman, who finally, hallelujah, is making it onto the show if nothing happens. Like last time it was a car accident. <laughs> he was heading back home to get on air with us. Um, then we have John O'Connor, who's the author of Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy. We're going to be talking to him because he also has his own podcast. Uh, he does a lot of journalism, uh, partisan journalism he talks about today. Um, so he'll be joining us, John O'Connor. And then we have Mark Mix, who's with the National Right to Work Committee. He's also president of the National Right to Work Legal Defense Foundation. And we're going to follow up with our usual guest from Heritage Foundation. And this week it's going to be Sarah Parshall. She's a legal fellow for the Edward Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation. So we've got a lot to talk about, a lot that is going on, and I hope that you just sit back, tighten your seatbelts, because, oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, let me put it this way. This is how bad it has gotten. Um, I was trying to send some legal documents down to the Virgin Islands, and I have an account with FedEx. I have an account with the post office. I've got an account with UPS. And FedEx is the fastest. So I get into FedEx, and I've done this thousands of times. Not thousands. That's a little exaggeration. But ever since 1995, I've been sending packages using FedEx, UPS, or the post office to send them down to the Virgin Islands, where my parents had lived. So I go to send these legal documents down, and all of a sudden, I can't send it to the Virgin Islands. So if anyone has their ear to the railroad track and hears the tom-toms, tell me what's going on because I could not send anything outside of the contiguous 50 states, not to any territory, not to any other country. I went up to a FedEx office and I said, listen, I can't seem to be able to do this on my desktop at home. Can you send this? He tried to do it at the FedEx station. He couldn't do it. So I come home, I try to do it through UPS, and I've done it through UPS tons of times. Not send anything outside of the 50 states, okay? I go to the FedEx office, which is around the corner from, I'm sorry, the UPS office that is around the corner from the FedEx office, 
would have saved myself probably about half an hour time if I just went straight to UPS. But she's trying to send it at the UPS office. She can get the 50 states, but she couldn't get anything outside of the 50 states. So her boss comes over, and they're fiddling with it for about 20 minutes. And they finally found an end run again around it. So I finally sent the package. I don't know what is going on, but they're restricting us from sending anything outside of the United States. So if anyone hears anything and tells me why, if this is just a phenomenon, it's a freak, because it's Annie trying to do it, let me know. Because something is going on. Because the second I turned around to the UPS girl, I said, do you think there's maybe a terror alert going on somewhere along the way? Uh, Maybe they're monitoring certain transactions going on. She goes, I was thinking the same thing. So if anyone hears anything, let me know. Meanwhile, my sister went to the post office, so I don't know how she made out with the post office. But I'll find out later on tonight whether or not she was able to get her package out because she was sending it to the same destination. But that's the way. If anything happens and if Andy's involved, it's bound to be screwed up. (laughs) So... Oh, good Lord. I want to welcome all of you that are listening over on uh, the Facebook page up on YouTube also today. Yes, we've got that up and running. we got it working. Yay. Anyway, um, those that listen know that we start off each and every show with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to two FBI agents. They were special agents, and it's Laura Schwarzenberger and Daniel Alfin who were killed in the line of duty on February 2nd of this year. And it starts off with Special Agent Laura Ann Schwarzenberger. Special Agent Laura Ann Schwarzenberger and Special Agent Daniel Alvin were shot and killed while executing a search warrant in Sunrise, Florida. Part of an investigation involving child pornography and violent crimes against children. The team was making entry into an apartment at 10100 Reflections Boulevard when a subject inside opened fire. Special Agent Schwarzenberger and Special Agent Alvin were fatally wounded, and three other agents suffered non-life-threatening wounds. The subject was found deceased inside of the apartment a short time later. And this is from MSN.com by Lisa L. Harish out of South Florida, Sun Sentinel. FBI Special Agent Laura Schwarzenberger, 43, was a longtime investigator who specialized in child-born cases. She is one of two agents killed while attempting to serve an arrest warrant in Sunrise on Tuesday, February 2, 2021, according to FBI Director Christopher Rye. Schwarzenberger of Carl Springs said she had been with the FBI since 2005, according to a criminal complaint she authored in September. She was assigned to the Miami Field Office Innocent Images National Initiative, which goes after people involved in the online exploitation of minors, including the production, distribution, and receipt of child porn and sextortation. Sextortation is a scam whereby con artists attempt to convince victims that they have sexually explicit photos and videos of them in order to get them to pay a ransom. In a 2018 with CBS News 12, 
Schwarzenberger shared her expertise on the crime and expressed sympathy for the victims. It is very traumatizing for the victims, she said. Their reputation is on the line. In the complaint she authored, Schwarzenberger said she received training on proper investigative techniques for these violations, including the use of surveillance, undercover, and the application and execution of arrest and search warrants. I have concluded, I'm sorry, I have conducted and assisted in several child exploitation investigations and have executed search warrants that have led to seizures of child pornography. She has given multiple presentations about her work at Rockaway Middle School in Miami, according to posts on Twitter. The most recent one took place in February of 2020. Schwarzenberger was killed while attempting to serve an arrest warrant for child pornography suspects at an apartment complex called Reflections, located at 10100 Reflections Boulevard West, between North Knob Hill Road and Hiatus Road. According to police, the suspect had barricaded himself inside the residence and began shooting. The suspect is now dead. Okay, fingers work. Here we go. And this was provided by the West Palm Beach Fort Pierce WFLX TV. The FBI agent killed in Sunrise Shooting Tuesday made their mission to fight against the exploitation of children. Special Agent Laura Schwarzenberger had been with the FBI since 2005, specializing in crimes against children. The 43-year-old Colorado native was assigned to the FBI's South Florida office in 2010. When she wasn't fighting child exploitation, she dedicated her time to the community. She was a frequent visitor to the Rockaway Middle School near Miami, teaching students, students there about her work, including as recently as this last year. She gave a presentation to the sixth grade students there about online safety and cyber crimes. From Twitter posted, great to have FBI Special Agent Laura Schwarzenberger join us to present our sixth grade legal studies and forensic, forensic science students about online safety and cyber crimes. And then later posted on Twitter, Special Agent Laura Schwarzenberger giving a lesson on cyber safety to law students. And after learning of her death, Rockaway Middle School issued a statement on Twitter calling her an integral part of the Rockaway Law Studies, the magnet for the past five years. Her obituary reads, Laura Ann Schwarzenberger sadly passed away February 2nd, 2021. She is preceded in death by her parents, Jim and Dixie, an older sister, Nancy, and in-laws, Camilo and Delbaca, survived by her loving husband of 16 years, Jason, her children, Gavin and Damon, goddaughter, Janae, brother, Ken, sister, Beth, nephew Brady, niece Morgan, aunts Darlene and Molly, Uncle Willie, and numerous cousins and extended family and friends. She was born and raised in Pueblo, Colorado, attended South High School. She received her bachelor's degree in criminal justice from Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts. 
She then went on to obtain her master's degree in international studies from the University of Denver. In 2005, Laura began her employment with the Federal Bureau of Investigations and was stationed in Albuquerque, New Mexico. In 2010, she transferred to Miami, Florida office, where she got her start on the Cargo Theft Task Force. She then transferred to the Violent Crimes and Fugitive Task Force before eventually finding her true calling as a member of the Violent Crimes Against Children's Task Force. As a loving mother herself, Laura had tremendous passion and enthusiasm for her work and was determined to make a difference in the lives of children. Her hard work did not go unrecognized. She received the Leo Award for Federal Agent of the Year in 2016 and received the Outstanding Law Enforcement Officer of the Year Award in both 2016 and 2019. She had many hobbies. She loved camping with her family in both the Colorado Mountains and at Jonathan Dixon State Park in Hobby Sound, Florida. She was a talented artist who loved to draw, paint, and do crafts with her boys, and she collected mementos that reflected her love of the coast and the many cherished family beach trips. She was also an avid course fitter and loved attending classes at her favorite gym, Course Fit Vice. She was also very involved in lacrosse activities with her boys and loved serving as the unofficial photographer for the Parkland Redhawks and the Stealth Lacrosse Games. She treasured the many friendships she made as part of her, her through these communities. Laura's greatest accomplishment in life was being married to the lover of her life and having her two boys. From Bill Hutchinson from ABC News. He was one of two FBI agents killed while serving a search warrant last week. On Super Bowl Sunday, the loved ones and colleagues of FBI Special Agent Daniel Allison filed into Miami's Hard Rock Stadium to give the slain law enforcement officer a super send-off with a 21-gun salute, a bagpipe serenade, a police helicopter flyover, and praise from the Bureau's top official for tracking down and arresting, quote, monsters none of us would ever want to meet, unquote. Alfred's casket, covered with an American flag and followed by his widow Jesse and young son Eli, was wheeled out to midfield on the turf that was normally home for the NFL's Miami Dolphins, but was transformed for the second consecutive day into an open-air sanctuary for solemn service. The funeral was held one day after memorial service for FBI Special Agent Laura Schwarzenberger, who, along with the 36-year-old Alvin, were gunned down while serving a search warrant at the Sunrise, Florida home of a child pornography suspect. Four other FBI agents were wounded in the ambush. The subject died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound, officials said. FBI Director Christopher Wray said at the Sunday service that both Alvin and Schwarzenberger were cut from the same patriotic cloth. On that Tuesday, we lost not one of our own, but two. Two warriors who took on one of the hardest jobs in the FBI, crimes against children, said Rye, who also spoke at Schwarzenberger's service the day before. 
He said Alvin and Schwarzenberger were two best friends who shared the same passion, the same determination, and, in spite of all, they witnessed in their extraordinary careers the same sense of optimism and hope that comes from work that matters. Rice said Alvin joined the FBI in 2009, starting at the Bureau's Albany, New York field office. He described Alvin as a true American hero who was full of passion for fighting for children every single day. He said Alvin, who was also a member of the FBI's dive team, was an innovator with an unsurpassing understanding of the technical side of crimes against children. Alvin, according to Rye, played a major role in fighting crimes against children internationally, training the FBI's global partners. He said Alvin's team won an FBI Director's Award, the Bureau's highest honor for their work on Op- Operation Pacifier, in which he and other found one of the largest child exploitation sites on the dark web. Its users were the worst of the worst, the stuff of nightmares, and Dan's expertise helped identify them and stop the victimization of so many innocent children, Rye said. Dan was both the primary case agent and the driving force behind that operation, which still stands as the FBI's most successful operation conducted on the dark web against online child sex event offenders ever. Alvin's brother, Dennis, recalled his sibling's sharp intellect and dry wit. In honoring Daniel today, we are not just saying goodbye to a colleague, a friend, a brother, a son, a father, or a husband. But we are collectively ensuring his memory lives on, Dennis said. As law enforcement officers and first responders, you selflessly put your lives above others, put your, your other lives above your own. As you continue to protect our communities, you will keep a part of Daniel alive. During the service, Rye presented the flag that had covered Alton's casket to his widow. Before the service ended, with a police helicopter flyover and with a riderless horse being trotted onto the field and next to Alton's casket, Father James Quinn, chaplain of the FBI Miami field office, cited scripture, saying, God will bless the peacemakers. Daniel was a peacemaker as well as being a peacekeeper, Quinn said. Today's show is dedicated to Special Agents Lauren Schwarzenberger and Daniel Alfin. It's also dedicated to the brave men and women out there that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency service. We also dedicate this show to the brave men and women that serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into our magnificent future. May God bless each and every one. We dedicate to them this song by Todd Ellen Herndon. My name is America. May God bless each and every one.
grip of oppression I fought for my liberty I paid with the blood of my people Freedom has never been free Now my door's always open To dreamers and friends When I'm attacked I protect and defend Because my name is America I stand proud and free My name is America Don't tread on me I cannot be broken I cannot be shamed If you hurt me I'll get stronger And I'll rise up I stand for my respect for humanity. Now I'm challenged by tyrants who envy my power, but their vicious deeds become my finest hour because my name. Website, the name of the show, put a hyphen in the middle, southern-sense.com. 
All right. We're waiting for our guest to call in, and Curtis is going to be a little late with us. Uh, he had a, an appointment, so he's on his way back home, and hopefully he'll be on the air very shortly within the next half hour or so. But we've got so much to talk about. Again, want to say hi to everyone that is in our chat room, listening here on Blog Talk Radio, as well as Facebook and YouTube. Um, this, you know, the world out there has actually gone bat mm, crazy. Uh, I don't know if anyone caught this. And it was like a little article that was shoved in the back of all the uh, media. And even conservative media barely carried this until it was like several days later. Um, there is a uh, conservative activist. His name is Abe Mandel. Uh, Mandel. Uh, and he was flying on a Southwest Airlines. And just before takeoff, he was eating Twizzlers. You know those Twizzler sticks? Those little red chewy candy you know, you get in that long package? You know, this was like, I don't know, this was supposed to be strawberry flavor. I have no idea what flavor they are. But I love Twizzlers. And my husband loves them. They're the little chewy things. So he was eating these Twizzlers. So, of course, if you're eating, you don't have your mask on. I mean, you can't put food through the mask. So he was eating on Southwest Airlines flight before takeoff, eating these Twizzlers. And this is his quote. He says, I, Avi Mandel, got kicked off a plane because I wasn't wearing my mask in between bites while I was eating. Now, this guy's out of Baltimore, Maryland, and he shot a video of it, which he put up on the Internet. And he, he was eating some of his favorite snacks before, you know, waiting for his flight to take off out of Fort Lauderdale last Sunday when a flight attendant told him to mask up before scurrying off. And he thought, oh, I guess she didn't know I was eating, he's thinking. So he heard the announcement over the loudspeaker that everyone who's eating has to wear masks in between bites. And then the next thing he knows, the plane is returned to the gate. And he wasn't thinking much of it, going back to the terminal, and, you know, until a security team came onto the plane and escorted him off the flight. Now, the only interaction he had with, with the crew was giving his ticket as he boarded the flight, gets into his seat. The flight attendant says, you know, put your mask on. He says, okay, all right, no big deal. Well, he's, he, he, was, he stayed composed and he, as he was being removed. But, you know, the passengers could be heard sticking up for him you know, in, in the video that he took. And they're saying, oh, well, that's oh so wrong. He did nothing wrong. Oh, wow. You know, here's this guy. All he was doing was eating Twizzlers. Oh, thank you, Chief. It's supposed to be raspberry. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> they're sweet. They're good. I like the taste of Twizzlers. Um, so he later on emailed Southwest. And they replied that he was booted off for ignoring a new, now I don't know if anyone else has heard about this federal mandate, but a new federal mandate out there uh, that went into effect that required passengers to wear their masks between bites of food and sips of drink. Now, has anyone heard about this new federal mandate? I mean, if, if that was out there, wouldn't you think Fauci would be front page on MSNBC or the criminal news network, CNN? They would be blaring this all over the place on ABC, CBS, NBC. But no, no. But they banned him from flying on Southwest Airlines for eating Twizzlers before the plane even got off the ground. So Ari Mandel, God bless you. 
<laughs> we're sticking up for you. Meanwhile, I do believe this is our guest caller. Want to bring on to the show, and I haven't had him on here for quite a long time, and I do apologize. My friend of many years, Ron Edwards. Good afternoon, Ron. How are you today? Good day to you. Um, great day, and uh, thanks for, for for inviting me back. Uh, I thought it would never happen again, but lo and behold, here I am. <laughs> well, I was I was bored. <laughs> I'm oh, one of those who can't wow. book anyone for guests. <laughs> right. Oh man. <laughs> well oh. but it's been it's been things have gotten pretty interesting since the last time I was on. We were oh, the man. last time I was on we were we were on our way up as a nation and now God help us. We're crashing and burning, man. Ron, we're crashing yeah, and burning here. I'm telling you, yeah. I, I, the world has gone that, you know, crazy. <laughs> right? Well, and, but but this, this is what benefits the Democrats, though. They um, thrive off of chaos, and they're trying to get we the people at each other's throats. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it's through race issues, stupid asinine race issues, equally stupid economic class envy uh, issues. Uh, let's see. And then they're trying to dummy us down. Well, they've always been trying to do that, but now it's just gone into um, hyper force, just trying to dummy us down with this 1610. Uh, what is, is it? Six, nine, is it 1619 project? Oh yeah. And, uh, it oh, yeah. just goes on and on and on. And our relations with um, China. Can you imagine, Anne, well, the last time it was on, we were gaining respect all over the world. Problems were being literally solved almost at some times on a daily basis. You had world leaders lining up to come to see the, the real president. Um, like it, it reminded me of the, Bible, the biblical story about Solomon, how world leaders came to visit him because of his great wisdom. And problems were being worked on. Not long ago, I don't know if you, you, you caught this quote from um, a rocket man. I don't think that was as much of an insult as the world tried to make it when Donald Trump called uh, Kim Jong-un rocket man. Because uh, the liberals called Donald Trump a lot worse than that. But uh, recently, Kim Jong-un stated that he and Trump, he considered Trump to be a friend and that he has no respect for Biden because Biden is a traitor to his own country. <laughs> how do you how do you, how do you gather that? And then you have a oh, guy like man. Putin, and then you know uh, Biden has made me truly. I actually like Putin now. If I ever, <laughs> if I ever, I, I you know I thought I'd had a, a nightmare one time that Putin and them attacked the United States. I had to wake up and apologize to Putin. Our real enemy is not Putin. It is not Kim Jong Un. It is. The Democrats and the rhinos right in the middle of our country, they are our greatest enemy, bar none, with the exception of maybe the education system. Well, you know, you're hitting it right on the nail, right on the head. And, you know, of all people, the raging Cajun, Jim Carvel, I don't know how Mary Matlin has stayed married to this man all these years. You remember he was married Um, in the Bush White House. But he's even calling – Calling the left, saying that they've gone too far. Wokistanis, Wokistanis, he's calling them. That he's saying that they, they, they've forgotten how to talk to the American people. And this is true. Look at the people like AOC. You know, oh. they, they, 
their feet don't even touch the ground. Those oars do not even hit the water. The elevator is still in the basement going further below the basement. You know, they have lost complete touch with reality. And, and when you hear Nancy Pelosi praising Liz Cheney, we have people in our own party, the Republican Party, that are just as that crazy as, as they are. Uh, and you, you just can't make some of this stuff up. And you listen to them and we go like, wait a minute. Uh, this is planet Earth here, right? We're, we're not on Mars. This isn't Venus. We're not we're out in, of Neptune. This, this is planet we're in Earth. Bizarro. <laughs> we're in Bizarro land. Remember the Superman comics, the, the one, the Bizarro land where everyone looked cracked up? Uh, that's where we're at right now. It's, um, and and you, you look at um, whether it's – it doesn't matter if it's Biden. It doesn't matter if it's AOC. It doesn't matter if it's Way Out Waters. It doesn't matter if it's Nasty Pelosi. I used to look at them and say, oh, my gosh, by gosh, by golly, these pe- people are hell incarnate. No, the, the real problem, even when it comes to that situation, and I, I, if I am uh, offending somebody when I say this, too bad. You shouldn't have earned it. The voters. I mean, AOC, there was a chance to defeat AOC, and the voters turned the right around. She tooted her backside up. They kissed it again and said, you're anointed. Go right back and just stay right there, toots. I met a guy <laughs> who was running against her. He was a black Republican. I didn't really like the guy. I met him. Uh, we were at a gathering before, right before the election. We were at the Trump Hotel, and this guy, he was I, – I like a person that, that is very confident, like a Trump yeah. or whatever, but the guy – he was he was beyond that. He was very cocky, and I and I remember leaning over. I told a friend, I said, "Oh Lord, Aok is going to wipe the floor with this guy." He was correct yeah. philosophically on the issues, but the way he carried himself, it was like because uh, they they introduced me to him. He's and he, and he looked at me and says, "Oh, you can hang with me." I said, "Uh oh, Aok's going to kick your ass," and everybody <laughs> was like, "Oh my God." And then I explained why, and that, and that was – I just instantly knew, and she wiped the floor with him. I mean he, I, I, he, he, he made it nowhere. I don't even think he got 1,000 votes, and that's a pretty large district. I used to live in New York, so I know that area. And uh, for the people, though, to continue to put her back, the people to continue to elect people like a de blah blah who is killing my favorite city on, on earth, New York City. But look. It, before him, they had another knuckle dragger. They're considering Yang now to run after uh, the blah blah is deposed, whatever, or he quits or whatever. So it's like the people, they're saying, give me the lash. We want more. 53% of the American people say that Biden is favorable in their eyesight. Be way I don't know who they're polling. At this. I, I'd I love to know, but they're polling somebody. <laughs> and the, oh, and 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 they're not totally untrue. The reason why I know this is because where I live, if you were to drive through this area, you would say, "Wow, Ron, this is a really beautiful area. This is it looks just great." But most of them are very liberal. My next door neighbor, white, uh, middle aged, in my age group, 
guy owns the husband owns a several uh, dental offices. The wife is very successful. She works from home. U of M grads. The whole nine yards, right? They did exactly what their parents told them to do, and they're very successful. They have to this day a huge Black Lives Matter sign in their yard. They had a smaller one, but when uh, I told my wife not to mention that we're conservatives, but she did, they got a bigger one. And if you come out there now, you will see this huge Black Lives Matter sign because they think they're tweaking me. And I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, I said, oh, my God, you've got all these white people around here with Black Lives Matter signs. They're supporting an organization that literally hates black men. The reason why I know that is because I have a few black relatives, uh, females, who wanted to join the organization. They did a U-turn because they said, um, Ron, if um, I joined the organization, that would mean I'd have, well, I would have to hate you, my father, <laughs> my uncles, every black male, everyone in our family, every male in our family. This is what they're about. And I would, she said also so that I would have to actually hate this country and, and want for its destruction, not be angry over issues and things of that nature and to try to solve them. It's about using those issues to destroy the country through uh, their wedge issues. And when I was here in D.C. and I walked those streets and I saw – I almost blew up. I almost went to Nutsville. They almost had, they had to drag <laughs> me back to, 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 to sanity. I'm standing in front of St. John's Church. And the sign is still there. It's almost as big as the church, Black Lives Matter. This is where the presidents would go. And because of those imps, presidents don't even go there anymore. It's just boarded up like in, a, in, a, in the hood, like in a, in a Detroit hood. It's boarded up, and you've got big boarded up windows at Saks Fifth Avenue and, 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 and all around. This is our nation's capital. And I'm thinking, my God, we just saw London and how clean and beautiful it is. And we went to Edinburgh, same thing. And look at this. We're supposed to be the big, mighty nation, and this is what we've allowed to happen. And I said, we are not a superpower. And you you couldn't convince me that we are. There's nothing you can say that that would convince me that we are any more a superpower. We're super stupid. Super stupid, but you notice the ones that are out there doing the Black Lives Matter that are causing the destruction uh-huh. and doing the chance are privileged yeah. white kids. That it comes from yeah, that's the especially upper in and it, it makes yeah. absolutely no sense at all to me at all. And we got our, my co-host has finally arrived on the scene. He's got his slate clip. He's waving in front of my face. Curtis, D.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. Curtis, unmute yourself. Hello, Curtis. Unmute yourself, Curtis. <laughs> anyway. Okay, I but, must you know, be on the wrong. Must be on the wrong. Uh... <laughs> there you go. We got to go. We're rocking and rolling here. Uh, we got our friend yeah. Ron Edwards with Edwards Notebook. Uh, Ron, your show is on what? Three to four in the afternoon every day. Yep, the Ron Edwards American Experience. And the Edwards Notebook you mentioned is a is a short form commentary that's uh, it's aired on about 300 stations overnights on Captain's America Third Watch and throughout the day on many independent stations as well around the country and so uh, so we've got those those things in, in cooking and uh, as well as a weekly column that I'm writing for uh, Your News and 
um, and as well as news reviews. And so, uh, you know, we, we try to keep busy just a little bit. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Yeah. But, you know, just to keep me from going you, insane. Did you catch the, the commercial that the CIA put out about how woke they are? Did you catch well, that one? Did you hear, that, that woman? Did you hear my, uh, yeah, did you hear my chin drop? Well, that was be in, in response to that. <laughs> I, I just uh, I, I, I just I was embarrassed. I, I, I was in, for a quick second I was very I was infuriated and then I just became so embarrassed I wanted to hide myself in a closet because I was so embarrassed for our country. That, that along with Joe Biden and, and other things, we look so stupid and so asinine on the world stage now. I, I was well, embarrassed. You know, I, well, you know, in the uh, United We Stand news, they had an article Joshua Jackson wrote, and he, he's so tongue-in-cheek. Uh, he goes, the video plays like a Saturday Night Live spoof. If Saturday Night Live was infected with woke itself, but it's not a spoof, and it's true. You would think it was something off of Saturday Night Live, and here's this—I don't know, male, female, what it what it is. Yeah. Uh, but she's she's out there saying, "I'm so happy the CIA and you know they understand me. Uh. I'm woke. I am I am me." And and, and I'm going wait, 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 CIA. In other words, no one's supposed to know that you're CIA to begin with. There. So forget about doing any undercover work, lady. You're not going to be posted in an embassy anywhere because the second they see your face, is, oh, that's the woman that did the CIA commercial for the transgender LBGTQXYZ community. Duh. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope they, I, I hope they place her somewhere in the Middle East, and and and, <laughs> and her face accidentally gets out. I would love to see the results of that because. Uh, you know, I I I um I don't want to say that I'm be, am becoming bitter, but I am reconfiguring my mindset and preparing for war because I think that's what it could be coming very seriously. Um, just today, I saw a video of um, oh gosh, I wish so many of these Democrats and, and appointees are so forgettable. But the, but the individual said uh, in, re, in, in regards to the border, ah, the American people don't, don't care too much about the border situation. Ah, that's why the president doesn't need to come down here. The American people aren't concerned about the, the border. And I'm thinking to myself, what in the F is this guy talking about? I know Americans uh-huh. that live on the border, near the border, very close to the border, and they have physical damage to their property. Because yeah. of the, the what what Biden has done, they don't let their kids uh, out in the yard. They make nope. sure everything is double locked up. They make sure they are locked and loaded, uh, shooting for bear because because they have stolen they've stolen cattle off of ranches. Um, they they've stolen gone into homes and ripped them clean. You know, no, no, there's no problem at the border. Oh, wait a minute, what about these unaccompanied children that are at the border and when the when they go there to help these kids and take care of them, they said, well, wait, they'll be here tomorrow. Don't worry. We'll take care. They go back the next day, and all of a sudden the kids disappeared. Where are these kids that we saw yesterday? What happened to them? Uh, I don't know. Well, oh, well, gee, I don't happening. know. Here's one thing that's happening, and this is another thing that made me almost keel over. American children are being booted out of their homes. 
American foster children are being booted out of the homes, and American families are being forced to take in these uh, illegal, these anchor babies and illegal border crosser children. They're getting emails and telephone calls asking foster families to take in anywhere between 8 to 21 children. Now, tell me, I'm sorry, in my house, I barely can fit one kid. I mean, between the three adults in the house, you're sleeping on the couch. You want me to take in eight more? Where am I going to put them? In the garage? Yeah. Is sleeping bags outside? But can you imagine the audacity of foster care or child services turning around and saying, American children are going to go back into foster care. They're going to go back to yes. foster asylums, like hospital yep. buildings, prisons. My grandfather was an orphan. He and his brother lived, grew up in an orphanage. And I'm telling you, the stories they tell are not pretty ones. And that's what they're doing to these yep. foster kids that already are damaged and setting them back into the areas that damaged them the worst. And no, oh, that's all right, because we're going to have illegal immigrants that have COVID, hepatitis, um, leprosy, uh, yep. you name it. And, but, you know, it's what? free. Just send them back into society. Well, I, 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 and I, as I told one rancher, I said, well, you can still afford it. Go get a backhoe. And since law enforcement is being uh, depreciated or, or reduced throughout the country. Um, now that ICE cannot do what they're trained to do, um, now that the border is just open for anything to drift across, you know, we're on our own. And so I suggest that, um, you know, you do what you have to do and utilize the backhoe and um, get rid of the evidence because uh, we're, we're basically on our own. We have an, a, a government that is officially um, you become our number one enemy. Uh, the, the, the government no longer works on behalf of we the people. It is no longer uh, we, uh, the government of the people, by the people, and for the people. It is, it is no longer that. And it's been that way in stages for a long time. Um, they, the, the government was the number one enemy of the uh, black American community, which was the Petri dish, and how they learned how they can destroy a mass of people and, and just demoralize them from within and make them hate where they were born, this, that, and the other. Now they're successfully working on the white uh, youth through the government school system, and they're doing the same thing that they did to the um, black community after, right after the bastardized rights movement in the, of the 60s. And um, now they're doing it on a larger scale after practicing on the black community, and you're seeing the results of it. Like I said, my neighbors, well-to-do folks, but yet they, 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 they support Black Lives Matter than they do their own country that has been a blessing to them. And so I used to tell people, I was a real young guy in the 80s, and I used to, I used to have this, these, I don't know if they were visions or just thoughts or whatever. I was always thinking ahead, and I said, my God, if they do what to America, what they've done to the black American community, if they get their way and they expand this, and John Dewey from the grave gets his way, we're done because you guys are the majority. You white people are the majority, the, the largest group. However, by 2000, oh, Lord, 42, I think, somewhere thereabouts, whites are going to be a minority, and you're going to have a majority. And see, I don't have a problem with what you are as far as your birth, but 
all of these people that they're bringing in, they're not coming over from, from countries that learned about us in a good sense, and they're coming here to be Americans and to assimilate into our society. These people that are pouring over now don't give a darn about our good way of life. They are here consciously, just like Black Lives Matter Americans and Antifa Americans, to join in the destruction of our country and turn it into the hellhole that they came from. They want hellhole on earth throughout the earth to destroy people, to disenfranchise, as Jesse Hay, where's the camera? Jackson used to always say, disenfranchise. Well, they literally want to disenfranchise us from, from being great Americans and all of that good because it's about the fundamental transformation of our country. I'm telling you, Coward and Piven would be proud. I mean, they would just, I, they, they've got to be, They've got to be clapping from hell. I mean, they're looking up and saying, yeah. And yep. Uh, yep. The, Demo- the Democrats are just getting their way. They're allowed. Um, and did you, did you, and I don't know about your, your, your level of faith or anything like that, but I assume based upon the things I've heard you say that you are a believer. Am I correct? Yes, I am. Okay. The reason why I, I asked that for a reason because I don't know if you remember, leading up to the election and even leading up to January 6th and then January 20th, and then we were given dates in March and April, all these prophecies that were going out. Now, I was mm-hmm. accused of having no, no faith because before the election I was saying, you know, just to, to appease them, because when I would say what I really thought, I would be attacked for not having faith. And they would, And I would say, well, how come... When I see things, I'm accurate, and you people have been saying this thing, and you thump your Bibles, you, you collect millions of dollars, and you've got all these people believing you, and they continue to follow you after every date passes that you were inaccurate on, on again. I was in D.C. January 6th, right there, right there, right there. Where we stayed was very close to the Capitol. Yep. These individuals that I was with, were bragging about their close relationship with General Flynn, Mike Lindell, all these people. We had dinner with them and all that stuff, and on. it's all over. Trump's going to take over overnight. We have to hurry up and get out of town before morning, before daylight on the 7th, because he's going to shut the town down and there's going to be a lot of arrest. I said, dude, wait a minute. I know you're all this, and you think you're this, that, and the other. It's not going to happen. Well, how do you think you know so much? I said, there's a thing called patterns. There's a thing called history. History repeats itself, and when certain things are engaged, other things happen in relation to that, and certain things have not even occurred for what you to say is going to happen to happen. Well, how do you think you know all this? And I know the generals. I know these people. I said, half those generals are liars. Well, how do you know that? I said, man, I said, are you people that dumb? Do you all ever pray? Do you all have discernment? Do you all, did you all really study history? Do you understand chess? I said, it's all, it's all common sense to me. And it went from them being lifetime friends, Ron, we're going to bring you into our media uh, conglomerate that we're building. And they did went ahead and built it. They, they have Western Journal and all that stuff they, they put, they're putting together and other stuff. 
And because of what I said, they kicked me out. But I was right. I was right. January 20th was the next day they said, well, we were there the 6th. And I said, why are you rushing us to get out of here so early in the morning when I know that we're going to be fine? Because our plane didn't take off until 11 o'clock the next day, right? Well, we, we're going to all going to be out of this house by, by 4.30. So we get dropped off at the, hosp- at the uh, hospital, the airport. And we had to sit there in the airport to wait for our flight at, at 11.30 because these know-it-alls who didn't know anything, and it's been this pattern going on and on. So I came to the conclusion, one of the reasons why Trump lost and why things ended up the way they are is because when we were getting all these prophecies, it was part of a trick to get us all gaped up and, oh, wow, it's going to happen. We didn't fight as hard. And, okay, God's got this, God's got this, this is going to happen, okay. And I was like, oh, my God, these people just don't get it. It's not going to happen that way. And here we are. And you still see some of them. If you, if you I, As a Christian, I just can't blast their names out. But if you check out some of these main people, they're still giving prophecies. Yeah, they are. I, I mean, I had a friend of mine tell me that come by April 15th, Trump will be taking power again. And I said, it ain't going to happen. And you, you hear people, as, as more and more information comes about, about the vote rigging, uh, it's it's yes. not going to overturn the election. The only thing that will ter- overturn this election is the next election in 2024. It ain't going to happen as much as uh, we would love to see it happen. It ain't going to happen. I mean, yeah. it's the Jeze- they call it the Jezebel spirit. It's the Jezebel spirit that is influencing ah, people. Yep. So you you know about the Jezebel spirit. I mean, I swear oh, I looked yeah. it in the face. When my mom, I needed to get a hospital bed for my mom, and I went to this woman's house to pick it up, her neighbor, I saw it in her face. It is an ugly-looking thing. And this woman was an attractive woman. But it shined mm-hmm. straight through her. And it's a Jezebel spirit that is doing every single thing to misdirect those of us that are of true faith. I'm not going to thump a Bible. I'm not going to quote it. I can't quote, honestly. But I do know what I believe in. And I do know that he has moved my life, Ron. There are times mm-hmm. where I, I thought I was praying for the right thing. My husband was just hours away from meeting his maker. And I prayed, uh, but I was praying for myself and going, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And when it finally hit me, that I was praying for the wrong thing, and I said, your will be done. Your will will be done. I accept whatever your decision is, but you know my heart, and you know where I, what I'm asking you for, God. I got walked into his hospital room an hour later because he was unconscious. I walked in there. He was sitting oh, up man. laughing. as if nothing was wrong. So I know the power. But I also know the Jezebel spirit, and it's an evil, incepted thing. You see it in Pelosi. You see it in AOC. It seeks the power, and that's what is happening. People are, are following the wrong message. Yeah, and it, it breaks my heart because I remember um, the, 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 a lot of the crowd in, in the Oval Office that surrounded Trump. 
And here's another area where I got attacked. I said, look, they're a traitor, they're a traitor, they're a traitor. There's a tra- Wouldn't you like to be a traitor too? I was just pointing. I said, look at all these people. These people are traitors, including Ivanka, the globalist daughter. And I said, Trump is, is, is a miracle that all the wonderful things that he do, did. And I would say, boy, wouldn't it be amazing had the Republicans and had his cabinet really been in his corner. Now, there were a few things that he could have done to flip things. Kevin, not Kevin McCarthy, but uh, Mark Meadows, the real big step backstabber, uh, and others just went railed against them. We're not going to support you. We don't want you to do this. We don't want you to do that. Uh, there was something that he wanted to do with black Americans, uh, a summit. Not a not the kind of crap that's going on now with the police and everything like that, but something that was structured that was based on uh, the situation that um, Tim Scott put together, but uh, it was even more on, on other issues, but it was on that level where there were actual solutions. And those many of those wonderful people that you think are wonderful conservatives that were surrounding the president, he wanted to do it. He was willing to meet with the, 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 those leaders and all of that because he broke the mold. He was able to get these people who hated Republicans to be willing to sit down and talk with him because they said, like Ice Cube and people like that said, well, you know what, man, but he's, he, he talks straight. He's, a, he's yeah. a straight shooter whether you agree with him or not, and you can see the sincerity he wants to do good, and he, and by the way, because I used to live in New York, Trump has a history of doing good, by the way. Yes. He has a history of doing good for people that he did not know and things of that nature. And when I would hear all these Christians attacking the man, well, okay, he did some good things, but he's such a terrible man. And I would say, well, what's so terrible about him? The worst thing they could come up with is womanizing. And these were mostly men that were saying this. And, of course, I lost a lot of friends by saying this. I said, you know the reason why you really keep harping on that? Because he's, he's changed from that, and he's gotten God's forgiveness. By the way, he's accepted Jesus Christ himself. But you, unlike God, have not forgiven him for that. But I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, sir, the real reason why you keep hanging on that is your excuse and your reason why you continue to um, not like the man personal. personal. On a personal basis, I think you're a jealous little pig because when you were young and affable, you couldn't attract women yourself, and you probably wanted what the nerd in the corner that no one wanted. <laughs> oh, you're cruel. And, <laughs> you are so and, a je- cruel. and jealousy and jealousy is the worst thing in the world, or one of the worst things in the world. I said that's what that comes from because all sin is wrong, but when you get forgiven and you change. And you make the sacrifices that this man has made more than any preacher that I've known. I know preachers. They, they, you call them up. Hey, man, I need a, 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 a – could you at least have, give me a half an hour to talk? Uh, I'm sorry. I'm in the middle of my soap operas or something. Whatever. Uh, call me back later. Uh, don't you know that I'm not on on Mondays? And, and Trump, if he, like I said, if he found out something was wrong, Boom, he drops everything. And he's always been like that. And Ron, um, remember, uh-oh, uh, I, I'm sorry, uh, I keep, right. I keep I, running on, don't I? That's all right, because i got my next guest up in, in the, uh, the okay. queue here. But people can okay. find you where? Where can the people find you? 
TheRonEdwards.com. That's my website. Uh, you can also find me uh, um, on the Ron Edwards American Experience Talk Show on Mojo Five O at 3 p.m. Uh, Sundays through Fridays, and uh, we can go from there. And uh, Anne, All I really right. thank you. I really appreciate being on on your show again. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Going to have to have you back on a little bit more often. Then maybe Curtis can get a word in edgewise. <laughs> Absolutely, he's a great guy. He's a great <laughs> guest too. Hey. It was a pleasure being on your, your show Sunday, Ron. Yeah, and by the way, my audience like you. We're going to have you back, too. Very well. <laughs> I look forward to that. All, All right. right. Check out yeah. Ron Edwards. Bye now. Ron, God bless. Keep up the good work. All right. Uh, it's always a pisser. I, I mean, I, I sat down with lunch with uh, Ron uh, one day because he was talking locally. Boy, <laughs> he's got the gift of the gab. But welcoming onto the show, Greg Roman. This is the third time he's tried to get onto the show. So hopefully, Greg, you are there. I'm here. Can you guys hear me okay? <laughs> yes, we got you. You are, you are the man oh, yeah. with the worst luck. I swear, every time we schedule you, something happens to you. Uh, uh, Greg Roman is the uh, Chief Operations Officer for the Middle East Forum. Uh, he's also the Director of the Community Relations Council for the Jewish Federation of Greater, Greater but the Teeth and Backwards, Greater Pittsburgh. And my co-host is out of Pennsylvania. So, Greg, welcome onto the show. Thank you for having me. It is my pleasure. It is my pleasure. Um, there is so much going on, and I don't even know where to start. This this administration is so crazy. They're doing stuff that uh, it's unbelievable. Um, one of our concerns is Iran. And after Trump got us out of that horrible nuclear deal with Iran, he's going to put us right smack back into it. Does this make any sense at all to you? No, it really doesn't. And the process of how they're going about trying to, again, uh, you know, basically be mendicants and bend over backwards for the Iranian regime is, is anathema to what it means to have a secure American foreign policy. You have two groups that are sitting in Vienna, Austria right now. One working group, which is trying to figure out a way for Iran to get back in compliance the 2015 Iran nuclear deal or the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, and a second working group that's looking at ways for the United States to provide Iran sanctions relief. Now, if I was to roll the dice and tell you what I think is going to happen and what the numbers were going to be, the first group that is looking at reducing the levels of uranium enrichment will keep on meeting, and they'll keep on trying to figure out how to do things, but it won't actually go anywhere. But the group that is focused on trying to alleviate the economic, the biting economic sanctions that the Trump administration reimposed on Rouhani and the Ayatollahs and Tehran will very quickly wrap up their work because whereas the U.S. is unsure whether or not it wants just relief from the enrichment cycle versus what it should actually be looking for, which is relief from Iran's terror operations across the Middle East, Versus what the Iranians want, which is a quick inflow of capital, you'll see that the Iranians know exactly how to get there. But the U.S. is still debating with itself on what it's looking for as a result of these negotiations. So the Iranians, again, are back on top, and it's not good for America when that happens. You know, it, it, they're blind if they think they're going to get an honest deal. 
And on top of this, they're going to release $1 billion in, quote, humanitarian aid, unquote. But there was a recent report um, out of Germany that was detailing how Iran is going after weapons of mass destruction. Now, we talk about, you know, enriched uranium and stuff for power plants, but it's only just one or two steps to take the stuff for making electricity and turning it into weapons of mass destruction. It's not that much of a step. They've already got the equipment. They've got the scientists. They've been getting the technical information from China and from Korea. They're getting all this information coming over. So they know how to do it. They've already been doing it. Uh, Didn't they recently have a mountain meltdown because they were developing all this material beneath the mountain? How blind and stupid is this administration? You're talking about Frodo. Yeah. So I'll just – I'll be very plain. I'll say if there's one thing we've learned from COVID-19 is is that there's a lot of ways to die. But if someone has enough ambition to be able to get somebody else infected, it could be biological, chemical, nuclear, radiological. It could be conventional. It could be terrorism. It could be non-state actors. It could be an army. If someone has a goal for you to uh, have a certain consequence associated with a lethal means of delivery for political uh, objectives, which the Iranians are very good at doing, they don't need a nuclear weapon to cause havoc in the Middle East. They don't need a nuclear weapon to threaten American interests, both there and also abroad, because the Iranians are expert conveyors of destructive capabilities to ruin what would make a safe America. If we have uh, naval forces which are deployed to the Persian Gulf, they'll send small boats with explosives attached to them to take out their holes. If we have a sudden surge in energy prices and we have to rely more on our Saudi and Emirati allies to provide a little bit more energy to take that Gulf, all they'll do is they'll launch a drone and it'll destroy all of the refinery capacity in eastern Saudi Arabia. If they go forward and decide that they're not happy with what's happening in the Middle East, they'll activate their proxies in Venezuela. I mean, they even have the ability to create their drone program by importing money across the U.S.-Mexican border, buying drone engines for those little do-it-yourself helicopter kits, and shipping them back to their own country. These guys are amazing. I mean, I don't want to give them a compliment in terms of how, how good they do their job, but if terrorism was an acceptable profession, these guys would be the number one practitioners of it. That's how deadly they are. So when you talk about yeah. Iran, it's not just about WMDs. It's not just about nuclear weapons. It's about their ability to uh, act as an adverse force against everything American around the rest of the globe. Absolutely. And you mentioned drones, and they are now so sophisticated in drone technology. But, gee, uh, haven't we been giving all that drone technology to China because they're manufacturing parts for our drones here? Oh, aren't they, weren't they doing that for the F-35s and the F-22s that were having strange problems with the pilots uh, getting dizzy while they're flying because of the components came coming out of China. And now China's working with Iran, which no one wants to admit in public, oh, heaven forbid, all this technology is flowing across the borders, and we're going we're gonna to get hit. We're going to get hit really bad. So the Chinese and the Iranians 
just signed a 20-year, $400 billion infrastructure investment deal that the Chinese basically had um, a trade, Iranian energy, that's oil and natural gas, for Chinese infrastructure building and technology and intellectual property provision. So Iran gets to modernize its economy, and China gets to fuel its economy. That was the trade-off. But just like you implied, parts of that, there's cybersecurity deals, which are parts of that. There are um, uh, exchanges of information, intelligence cooperation. When two countries' economies are close together, like the U.K. and the United States, they inevitably will have much more connections with military, um, science, research, economy, culture, whatever else. So the Chinese and the Iranians getting closer together. When Joe Biden, in a speech last week, announces that the U.S. must be aware of China, is still getting closer to its number one ally, Iran. It makes no sense. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And the Chinese road initiative is not helping us either. You know, that's, that's just adding more fuel to the fire. And we're digging our own grave really, really fast. And you've got a naive or maybe not naive, maybe it's intentional, because wasn't Joe Biden involved with certain industries in China that were connected to Iran? Uh, didn't he have the uh, uranium deals, whatever it was that was going on in the Ukraine? You know, you wonder whether what side our president is on. on. It's on our side or our enemy's side? No, I think the president's on our side. I'm one of these individuals who will say that, you know, we have a Manchurian candidate who's in office. I don't think that's a fair um, way to characterize the president's policies. But I do think that to say he's inept and that he is unable to successfully steer where we're trying to go because he's just got bad ideas. At the end of the day, there's nothing more nefarious than someone who is knowingly incompetent. Okay? Like, I don't want to be the guy who says, um, you know, well, the president is working for China or his son is working for Greece and Ukraine. I'm going to get a lot more simple than that and not try to dabble into the area of what may or may not be. But if it's a, it's a spade, you got to call a spade a spade. And this is just bad policy coming out of the United States. It has to be rectified. And I hope that whether it's done through analyses published by think tanks like mine or other allies like Israel and the Gulf states wake up and they're able to convince the U.S. otherwise. I mean, there was one interview that took place last night with Tony Blinken on NBC News. I don't know if you, um, if you had a chance to see this or not, but he did say no, maybe this is just paying lip service. Maybe this is just paying lip service to, uh, to Hawks like me. But he says <laughs> if, if, if Iran – so I mentioned it on the radio, right? Now, uh, if, if Iran does not comply with the objectives that we've set out in our renegotiating uh, stance, we get to a new deal, we'll be ready to contain a nuclear Iran. He doesn't say we're ready to prevent a nuclear Iran. What's the difference between containment and prevention? Prevention assumes that they're going to have to break out capacity for a bomb. We shouldn't be there. Containment should not be the strategy. The strategy should be prevention. And if diplomacy doesn't work, there's other means, just like President Trump enacted through what we call targeted, tailored deterrence. You know, you, you get the few guys at the top who are the decision makers rather than targeting an entire country. You don't want all of Iran to hate you. 
we want the leadership to realize that it's not worth it a while to produce a nuclear program. Now, what, what is going on? I was going to, I'm sorry, Curtis. I was just going to ask, what is going on with John Kerry? Why isn't anyone going after him by telling Iran that Israeli did these hits on you? Now, what is up with, why aren't we hitting him with the Logan Act and every other thing that they were trying to hit Trump with? So, a few things. We don't know if John Kerry made those statements to Foreign Minister Zarif when he was Secretary of State or when he was a private citizen. I don't want to defend the guy, but I also don't want to put up our side on the legal uh, block, which we have to you know, scale back down from. Second thing is, is, is that denies it. But it's emblematic of Obama administration, now Biden administration policy. They are willing to use close intelligence secrets provided by an ally to obtain political uh, objectives without trying to clean the information. Now, if the U.S. said, we have uh, been made aware of some strikes which have took place in Syrian territory against your um, country's forces, you guys probably shouldn't put your forces in that country. That's a nice way to deliver it, right? They're not saying the Israelis did it. They're just saying, hey, take Iranian forces out of Syria because you're going to keep on getting hit. That's the proper way to deliver the message. To do it if it happened like Zarif says Kerry told him, oh, over 200 Israeli strikes have uh, targeted you and you're in Syrian forces in, uh, in Syria over the past X amount of years. You don't want to do that. And it's not because Kerry can't deliver that message. I guess it's within his prerogative as Secretary of State. It's a bad idea, but maybe he could do that. It limits the ability for the Israelis or any other Western intelligence agency that might get information that preempts an attack against America, and it makes them more reluctant to share that information with the U.S. So providing allies' intelligence information to one of their adversaries, it's not about betraying the ally. It's about betraying a source of information that you use to keep America safe. Americans are less safe because of that intelligence (laughs) leak, not Israelis. Yep. Curtis, go ahead, honey. Yeah, you... You mentioned earlier about Biden's bad policies, but in my estimate, I really am dubious whether um, Biden has any policies. I don't think he's competent to have policies. I think he's being um, led by those around him who seem to have an affinity to authoritative um, regimes like like Iran and, and China and North Korea, you know, they, they, they want, I mean, they look at these countries and they figure that's the way to go with America. So, you know, they have this agenda where they want to tear this country down so they can rebuild it, you know, in their own fashion. And I think what they have in mind is um, places like, like China and Iran where they control everything. So I really, you know, I really don't expect Biden to even finish out this year because I know he has some cognitive issues and they can hide it for so long. But like I said, I really think, you know, he's a puppet and he's being guided by puppet masters all around him. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I, I hear a lot when I'm talking about the Middle East about state controlled media, right? Organs which have to toe the government's official line, 
In this country, we've evolved to a system of a media-controlled state where those who are making six-figure and seven-figure salaries as analysts on CNN are now back in a position of control, dictating their own editorial line and trying to make it become the policy of the United States government. Because it sounds good, but because there's a more uh, formal line which betrays not just American security, but American sensibility. So you're right. A president is the sum of his advisor's policy recommendations that he decides to accept. So Susan Rice, John Kerry, Tony Blinken, Colin Call, Lisa Monaco, some of the top national security decision makers are the Biden administration, and Joe Biden is them. The more that um, Biden embraces these opinions, that's the direction of the United States. And I don't think it's necessary, necessarily that they have an affinity for authoritarianism. I think they have an affinity for control of both their narrative and their worldview, and they'll do anything to attain that, you know, if the ideology is correct, rather than what I think should dictate American foreign policy concerns, which is real politique. They don't look at the world the way it is. They look at the way the world is in their minds the way it should be, even if that objective is unattainable. And because of that naivete, we get into situations like the Iran deal. We get into situations like the surges needed in Afghanistan and Iraq because of this idea that back then, you know, 20 years ago, democracy could be spread through strength, could be spread through strength rather than through a natural inclination to adopt it. So, yes, these advisors are leading us on a uh, path to hell, even though they may be paved with good intentions, it's still uh, to see Lazarus, and, and that's not good for anybody. No, there's an arrogance where people that are in this administration assume assumes everyone thinks exactly like they do, not taking into consideration the cultures that we are dealing with and the the tapestry of history that has molded them and their mindsets that is so different than those of ours as the Western American mind. You know, here we, we think that everyone's a good guy, everyone gets along, and when you say something, you really mean it. That's not the mindset you have when you go to the negotiating table with the Communist Chinese Party. That's not the mindset you should have when you sit down with the Iranian Ayatollah. You know, there's a different mindset, and you have to step into that person's mind and shoes and think the way they think. That's not what our administration is doing, and they're blindly, like you said, possibly going down the primrose path of good intentions, but leading us straight to hell. And you know what? You have the first part of the recipe there. The second part is you have to stand by your American bona fides. You don't have to sacrifice what it means to be an American because you're trying to ameliorate or accommodate position of another country. Yeah, every negotiation ends up with both sides thinking that they're a winner, right? But in Mm -hmm. every negotiation, Biden or or Obama or their uh, neophytes have negotiated, America always ends up losing. You know, the idea of American exceptionalism and American supremacy, I don't mean supremacy like white supremacy or this idea of some ideologically higher good, but the idea that America should be the big country on the block. It's okay to think that way. And you know what? There's a cost associated with it. So if you're an individual 
or you're a politician, or you're a statesman or a negotiator that doesn't inherently believe that America should be the strongest country in the room, then maybe you belong with this idea of uh, equilibrium or equality between states that the Biden administration has embraced. But if you recognize that there is American exceptionalism, that we have to do what it takes to stay on top, and that doesn't mean placating our enemies or being subservient to their positions, but being willing to rattle the saber when it's necessary, then that's okay. Now, listen, I call balls and strikes. There was times when President Trump made some decisions, like being friendly towards President Erdogan of Turkey, which I really disagreed with. But overall, he knew what it meant to embrace American exceptionalism. Same thing with Biden. He did a good job recognizing the Armenian genocide and really sticking it to Erdogan. At the end of the day, a NATO ally shouldn't be buying Russian weapon systems. Cut and dry for me. So Biden, he did a good job with that. But in total, in large part, he doesn't get it. So you got to be able to do both things, say it's good when it's good and bad when it's bad, but your overall analysis, at least in this case with Biden's first 100-plus days, we're not on a good track with Middle East policy. No, we're not. We're not. And we're not standing behind Israel the way Trump did. Now, i got a question, though, because I could never quite figure out Israeli politics. I'm sure, to me, it's... <laughs> if you think I can't see, you got the wrong guess, though. <laughs> well, as I understand, no, they're, they're trying to get this unity government put together, and it looks like Netanyahu is finally going to retire. I wish he'd be our president, <laughs> but... Um, what what is the situation over there? Because it's really so hard to understand at the American if, if mindset. You, you, know, you elected a president, you and you've got, I've got left. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry <laughs> to interrupt you, but if you tell me, am I going to give you the 90 second answer or the 90 minute answer? How much time do we have left? In 90 seconds. <laughs> All right, 90 seconds. Israel has a process where 120 candidates are uh, put into office as members of Knesset or members of Parliament, uh, elected by party lists. You're not voting for an individual person. You're voting for a list of candidates. And the proportion of that list vote, you get 10%, you get 12 seats, is who gets into the Knesset. So Netanyahu had the biggest party, right? He had 30 seats, one quarter of all the votes. But all the other parties couldn't agree to give him the 61 seats needed or the majority needed to create a government so he's prime minister again. He lost his opportunity to become prime minister last Tuesday. Now it's Yair Lapid, the head of the Israeli opposition. And by the way, 80, 80 seats out of 120 are what you would call conservative, uh, uh, you know, liberal with uh, the small L, okay, seats that, that are traditionally in, in a pretty good position, okay? Um, Lapid has 21 days now to put a government together, and it looks like he's going to be able to create an alliance of people who used to work for Netanyahu but don't like him anymore, um, Arabs who actually want to improve their citizens' lives rather than just reject it, a Jewish state, and mainstream Zionist parties from the center-left to center and the center-right that are ready for a post-Netanyahu era. So all those things coming together, it's, it's looking pretty good for Lapid, the former government. But if he doesn't get those 61 seats, it becomes a free-for-all for 14 days. Any member of Knesset who can get 61 signatures on a piece of paper and 
brings it to the president can become prime minister. If that doesn't happen, wow. you're looking at your fifth election, and maybe Netanyahu becomes prime minister again if he gets that majority. Wow. So it's a yeah. huge free-for-all for the next couple of weeks, unless it, something it, happens to me. It is universal democracy. It is, it is a free market of votes that are out there. It really is one of the most democratic systems in the world. Sometimes the chagrin of the Israeli public. Wow. You know, there, there was a recent tragedy over there at Mount Marin. Um, is there any word what's going on there now? Uh, because I've been reading the articles, and it's so heartbreaking. There is a state commission of inquiry that has been formed, which is half from the Justice Ministry and half from the Israeli police. Um, and, and the thing with state commissions of inquiries in Israel is they have the ability to um, – I would say hire and fire, but they have the ability to remove people from their positions uh, if it's chaired by a Israeli Supreme Court justice, which in this case it is. So there'll be an investigation. Um, it'll probably lead to uh, the centralization. You know, at the Vatican, like St. Paul's Basilica, or if you've been to the Western right. Wall in uh, Jerusalem or Mecca and Medina, you've seen on TV, there's a government office which is responsible for the administration of holy sites. And if you go to the Vatican, there's a guy and, and an authority set up where his job is to preside over St. Paul's facility, right? Mm-hmm. In Israel, you have that same kind of authority responsible for the Temple Mount and the Western Wall. But in Mount Meron, it's the Wild West. There's not wow. one central state authority that controls the, the, the overall administration of that spot. So I think what you're looking at, and, and by the way, it's the second most visited holy site for Jews in Israel. So looking looking at that that way, and looking at what happened, um, you are likely to find that's probably the top policy recommendation that will take place afterwards. And you might even find that some people are brought up on charges of uh, criminal negligence for allowing this to happen. But we'll, we'll we'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, my prayers go out to all the victims and the people that are suffering from that incident. Um, but. It has been a pleasure to have you, Greg. You finally made it with us. People can find you at your website, which is the Middle East Forum. Um, There's a link on our show page. If they click on your name, we'll take them directly to your website. And thank you, and God bless you for all the hard work you do. And we're going to welcome you back. Thank you for having me. Hopefully it won't take another three times this time, right? Three times (laughs) to charge. Thank you. Take care. Have a blessed weekend. Bye-bye. Greg Norman, uh, Greg Roman, check out his website, Middle East Forum. Got to welcome back onto the show. I love this man. I really do love this man. If he was single, I'd go after him. Anyway, don't call my husband. <laughs> welcome aboard, John O'Connor. Good afternoon. <laughs> welcome back, John. <laughs> so great to be with you, Annie. Oh, man. It, it, it is a wild west. I mean, it's crazy. The, the world has gone upside down. I, I mean, in all my decades on this earth, uh, and I've passed the year hitch, uh, I have never seen a political environment so ripe with nuttiness. What's the latest now? We've got a deep throat going on on Giuliani and Trump going after their chats in the cloud. What happened to the Constitution being safe in your person and papers? Well, of course, it used to be that there was such a thing as illegal searches and seizures, and there's another thing. It's called attorney-client privilege, of course, 
and you, you, you must tread very carefully. You're supposed to whenever you're grabbing any communication with a lawyer. And that here they're raiding Rudy's offices, who's the lawyer for Trump. They're raiding Victoria Tensing's law officer, who, law officer, who was obviously operating wherever she was as a lawyer, perhaps for the Ukrainian folks. But it's silly. And what's really silly about it is, Annie, is that FARA, Federal Agents Registration Act, um, you know, really, if you want to get real technical about it, it applies to just about anybody, perhaps my dog, but certainly I might have an opinion, for example, back when the Irish Troubles were going on about what should happen. And gosh, if I say something uh, to a congressperson like, gee, I think you ought to you know, really try to work to resolve the Northern Ireland problems. Uh, am I a foreign agent for Ireland? If a person <laughs> who's a pro-Israel backer tells his, tells his congressperson, listen, I've just been over to Israel talking to everybody, and they're really worried about their safety and their security, I'd like you in Congress to do something. Are you negotiating you an agent for Israel? Come on. It's really silly. There are all kinds of situations in which lawyers especially or lobbyists have these different relationships most of the time, even when they're clearly agents, you know, the government taps them on the shoulder and says, uh, you know, maybe you guys ought to register. Okay, if you guys want to, I don't think I need to, but I'm going to go do it. Happens all the time. John Podesta did it right in the middle when they're nailing Manafort. <laughs> he and his brother start registering, you know, even though they did the same thing Manafort did. But the point is, here's what they're doing, Annie. They are using this very flabby, vague law that can go against anybody and can cost anybody $2 million to defend it. They're getting headlines with it with selective leaks. And what it does is it protects Biden, the Bidens, from any scrutiny for their corruption in Ukraine. That's what Rudy was over there doing. He was trying to figure out what had happened uh, regarding Trump and the uh, election. And he, they thought that there was interference from Ukraine, so he was over there. These Ukrainian officials have, have, have were complaining about this Marie Yovanovitch being really sort of a stealth uh, agent for George Soros and for the Obama people. And she was starving the prosecutor's office out of funds, and those prosecutors would have gone after Hunter Biden's clients. No, she steered the money to a private outfit run by George Soros, a private anti-corruption outfit, and the regular prosecutor got um, uh, got shoved out of the way. So they were complaining. They couldn't complain to anybody. Jovanovic gave them the, the, the order not to prosecute the people from Soros's office for embezzlement, and that's when, where the matter got left to Rudy. Rudy tells Trump, Trump fires Jovanovic. Simple as that. He's not acting as a foreign agent. He's acting as Trump's agent. So, and, and, and Rudy's in there sniffing out corruption. That's when Trump gets the idea there's a lot of corruption over there that hasn't been investigated, especially with this new president. So you can't make this up. The new president's chief backer was a guy named Igor Kolomoisky, a Hunter Biden client who had stolen $5.6 billion out of U.S. foreign aid. Whoa. He's now... And nobody ever talks about Igor Kolomoisky. It's stunning. He doesn't come back into the country until he gets Zelensky elected. So when Zelensky is trying to push Trump off and be nice to him but not do anything, 
it's because one of the guys that's going to get investigated is his own backer. Kolomoisky owned the television station where Zelensky was a comedian. He was his main backer. He's a, Zelensky was a popular guy, a cute guy. Kolomoisky backed him, and so that now Kolomoisky's got power over Ukraine. But the point for our purposes is that Trump was onto something. Kolomoisky uh, it, it was Hunter Biden's uh, favorite client, and guess what? Who got the foreign aid for Kolomoisky? A guy named Joe Biden, and of course John Kerry too. Those two, and Kerry's son Heinz was a partner with Hunter. So you can't make this up. There's all kinds of very stinky corruption over there that now we're talking about whether Rudy violated FARA. Give me a break. This is sheer political thuggery. It has no basis in fact, and yet the statute is flabby enough so that they'll be able to make him go to trial. I think Mueller did the same thing to Greg Craig, uh, who is a Democrat. He did that to make it look like he was even-handed. But he was not. And so, um, uh, and, and Craig spent $2 million and got acquitted. And that's what will happen to Rudy. They'll probably take this thing to the end just to keep the spotlight on Rudy and away from Biden. That's what this whole thing's about. It's crazy. And the problem is our major media don't say anything about it. They keep quiet because they love Rudy getting roasted. Nobody out there in the country could tell you about one out of a thousand people could tell what they're really investigating Rudy for. Uh, you know, but so it doesn't make any difference. It's just, oh, it's it's a it's a terrible, you know, sort of like like the Russian collusion. It's something terrible Rudy's doing over there. Everybody wants to uh, uh, believe the worst about him. So that's what's too bad about this thing. Well, I, I think it's also a preemptive strike against Trump for running or even thinking about running in 2024. I think they're trying to get their ducks in a row and try to make it so to the point where Trump cannot get reelected. Well, that's part of it. That's part of it, of course. They want, to, they want to damage him as much as possible. They've done that a bunch as it is anyway. So, uh, but, but what, what this really is doing is taking the spotlight off for Biden. Remember, Hil the Russian collusion came up to take the spotlight off of Hillary. This is being done to take the spotlight off of Biden. Well, that's a huge yes on that one. Also, Hillary Clinton, yeah. But, you know, you look at what's going on. Now, they didn't go after uh, John Kerry. He's, he's the, client, the climate change czar, whatever you want to call him. But yet he and Teresa Hines have huge holdings in oil companies. They didn't go after him for the Loganet, um, with his other stuff. It, it, is, it is such a, a witch hunt, but it's a one-sided witch hunt. The law is for thee, but not for me. And here you do an illegal search, but this time they didn't use CNN to go through the front door with the SWAT team. They used the New York Times. So it's not the same as when CNN was warned ahead of time. But no, it doesn't matter. New York Times was warned ahead of time. It's, it's well, that's right. Same, that's absolutely. Same play. That's right. Go that's ahead. right. And so what happens is you get an attorney general like Barr, who really is fairly principled, and he doesn't go after. And you notice he had forbid these actions when he was attorney general and he also didn't do anything terrible to any democrats at the time he's very fair to the democrats but but the shoes on the other foot and these guys play a different ball game because they're going to get protection from the media and nobody has ever talked about schiff being involved with one of the most corrupt oligarchs in um uh in uh, in uh, ukraine named pasternak who 
who gets all these weapons contracts out for foreign aid, and then the money goes down a rat hole someplace. You know, so this this whole thing is corrupt, uh, Annie, and that's that's all there is to it. That's the basic bottom line. This is corruption, and they're trying to you know, put up a smoke screen by going after Rudy, plain and simple. Yeah, here you got John Kerry received five million dollars from the Bank of America as chair of the bank's global advisory council. Where's where's he falling to Logan X? Nowhere. Um, we've got here somewhere between one point thirteen million to two point eight seven million in oil and gas holdings they have. Um, they had recent uh, transactions showing as much as fifteen million sold in stocks uh, in Cabot Oil and Gas. It goes on and on and on, but, you know, he's a Democrat, so we're not going to touch him. That's okay. You know, if it's a Republican, go go, go cry him as much as you can, but if it's a Democrat, uh-uh, you can't touch. It is well, the fact, yeah. well, it is, and I think the bigger hypocrisy is going after the Republicans. I mean, the Logan Act is a nothing. They, the Democrats use that very cynically to scare people into talking like Flynn and to try to scare them. They know that that's probably an unconstitutional act. But the, my, the point is, is not that we should be prosecuting. Well, we should be investigating Biden's corruption in Ukraine. That's the big ticket item. You know, we have fined, the United States government fined J.P. Morgan hundreds of millions of dollars because they hired princelings, that is, the sons of big shots in the Chinese communist government. Uh, government. And the idea is, is if you hire a princeling, that gives you a leg up to get graft. Well, we don't have the reverse. If a foreign country hires our princelings, there's nothing in the law saying that that's wrong. It should be looked at as wrong, but it's not in practice done. It's not embedded in the law. Guess who's hiring princelings? They're hiring. Guess what? Joe Biden's son and John Kerry's son. And nobody says anything. Oh, they, they, they're their own private people. They can. We recognize that the hiring of princelings is corrupt per se. It's like hiring somebody's wife. You hire somebody's wife, you're hiring the guy. You, you pay a million dollars to Mrs. So-and-so, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're really paying off the person she's married to. Or vice versa, you're paying the husband for the wife if the wife's the politician. The point is, is that everybody is closing their eyes to the fact that, that Hunter Biden, uh, really, let me put it this way. If you're going to pay $3 million to Hunter Biden, are you going to find out first whether his father is playing ball with him? Of course you are. Mm-hmm. You meet with Biden all the time. All you have to do is say, hey, how about Hunter? What, what do you say about Hunter? Oh, oh I love oh, Hunter. Hunter and I are close. I take his advice very seriously. Well, guess what? They know that they've got this locked. They know it's good to hire Hunter because Joe is going to do what Hunter advises. So if you think that there's been no coordination uh, on this hire of Hunter, it's absurd to think that. It's absurd. And we know that's not true. On Hunter's laptop, there's a, a, a thank you note from a guy from Burisma, one of Hunter's clients, thanking Hunter for setting up the client. The meeting with Joe, and now meanwhile Joe said he's oh no he never discusses business with his uh, with his son. <laughs> you know when when they were first hired, Devin Archer, Hunter's partner, met with Joe in the White House for over twelve hours. They had a meeting. That's when they got hired. So does the, is Joe wired in on this deal? Of course he is. Of course he was. We have a corrupt president who nobody is even talking about. That's the way it is. It looks. Let me put it this way. It looks like he's corrupt. 
It quacks like a duck, waddles like a duck. Maybe it is a duck. Okay. Man, it, it, there's so much to go into this one because then I can throw in Mitch McConnell. But I, I take right. his first name, I take the M off, and I put a B in front of it. And if that is not a person that is in bed with the communist Chinese, I don't know who is. I mean, well, there you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah, we got it. We got we got a wicked world out there, Annie. So that's all I can tell you. So now, anyway. Well, I'm going to ask you now. What's sure. going on with General Mattis and Amazon? And this is starting to blow up in the face. And wasn't Amazon the one the government just contracted with? Or no, actually, it went to actually to Microsoft to, to run the government records, putting it up into the cloud. And is, this is, well, is right. Blowing? Stuff going on around here with General Mattis, Amazon, and his uh, his gal Sally Donnelly. Well, yeah, and you know uh, Mattis. Remember this? Mattis was very much an anti-Trumpy. The Amazon took um, Parler off its site, off its cloud. There's a lot of stuff going on, but Mattis is clearly in the anti-Trump camp and is making some good money that way. And he's he's one of the guys that people love. People with stars generals who are going to talk about, uh, you know, help, help prop up the Democrats who are so weak on national defense. In my view, uh, some of the stuff that uh, Mattis has said is just, just not very bright. He's not a real, he's not a scholar. And he started lecturing everybody about how Trump shouldn't call out the National Guard in Washington. Unless, of course, there are 200 people that wander into the Capitol, and now we need 26,000 National Guard troops. You know, afterwards, not not before, but after. So Don't forget the, the whole fences. thing is corrupt. Yeah. <laughs> Go Sorry. ahead, Curtis. John. Yeah. This all leads me to my hypothesis on why it was so important for the left to gather their resources in a, the effort to oust. Trump because Trump knew about the corruption and had he gotten in a second term he would have went after all of them and I believe some of them would be going to jail you know before the end of his second term Uh, what are your thoughts on that well bingo you have the Durham investigation which will produce indictments but it's going to be limited to the FBI but you're right if Trump stayed in there you would have opened an investigation on the Biden's and and uh, and it would have been curtains for Biden. There's too much there. It's just too obvious. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Um, this election meant a lot. And if you needed to haul in a several hundred thousand ballots in the middle of the night, so be it. Even if they're not folded, uh, you know. Uh, so this was a very desperate election that they had to win. You're absolutely absolutely right. Well, I think you could throw the Epstein investigation into that, too, because, you know, a lot of stuff got swept under the rug when Trump left because they don't want the Clintons dragged into this with Jeffrey Epstein or a, a number of other prominent Democrats. Well, that's right. I mean, it's like when they rounded up Russian spies in uh, 2012 or 13, might even been 2010, who were all going to rat out Hillary. And guess what? They sent those Russian spies back to Russia so fast they didn't even have a chance to get their toothbrushes, you know. Uh, and normally they would take the foreign spy and, and sweat them out and make them talk and do all kinds of stuff. 
They didn't do it this time because the talk would be against Hillary, so they sweep it under the rug. It's a common thing. You won't find the Clintons getting anything here. They're now going to be fairly much immune. Bill is going to, you know, I don't think the prosecutors are are, uh, really pushing uh, uh, Giselle – and I'm just thinking of Jelaine Maxwell. They're not pressing her to, to nail Clinton, I'm sure. No. And they, they keep her under wraps and quiet. That's yeah. right. They'll she, try to get Dershowitz, but they won't get they won't get Clinton. And I think uh I don't think she really has Dershowitz. I think Dershowitz was acting as a lawyer. Uh who knows uh, what else they're gonna do to get Dershowitz. But so that's the game. It's a nasty game and the Democrats play it. Uh, without gloves on, you know, if they take the gloves off, uh, the Republicans are Marcus of Queensbury. So it's just a shame, Andy. Annie, I can't, uh, I'm just disgusted by the whole thing, but hey, you know, it's well, the way now, the world I'm, is. We've just got to do something. Yeah. Well, I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball at you uh, because over this past election, we saw the stifling of our First Amendment free speech, left and right especially through right. these um, uh, big tech companies like Facebook and Twitter and Amazon. And now that you have some Republicans actually trying to break up big tech, uh, do you see this going anywhere or do you see that we're going to be like, unless we find ourselves another avenue for a voice, we're going to be stifled and shut up? Well, right. They don't want to break up big tech now because big tech's doing what they want. Tech is uh, censoring conservative speech. Uh, they, they, they're actually much more useful being powerful than weak. If they break up the big tech firms, you're going to find more voices for conservatives. And right now, there's a monopoly going on. It doesn't make any difference if there are a lot of conservatives who are upset about it. They got nowhere to go. You want to use the, you know, you want to use Facebook. You want to use Twitter. That's where you got to go. You know, you want to buy something online. You buy it from Amazon. So. Once again, that's where their power is. Their power is in the big tech companies and in the major national media, and they're going to hold on to that bitterly and uh, tenaciously. Well, you know, and you know Amazon. I, I'm sorry, Chris. I was, was going to say Amazon say that, really, uh, really, Amazon really blew up with this pandemic. They they cornered a market here, but now right. I'm wondering if they spread themselves a little bit too far. Because now that we open up, people are going to start going back to the mom-and-pop stores, the Walmarts, and things like that, the Costco's. Do you see well, Amazon yes making no, No? No, yes and no. Uh, my daughter works for a, a firm that sells a lot online, uh, one of the Gap firms. And what they see is they see that this, this um, pandemic has, you're right, it will snap back to some extent. But people's habits have changed. You know, there are going to be more remote workers. Uh, buildings are going up for lease in San Francisco. There's vacancies. It's a different world out there, and more people ordering stuff online. Their habits have changed. So Amazon is going to keep making big bucks, and, uh, you know, and, and they've got so much power, they can come into any field and beat the heck out of you. So it's an amazing, amazing engine there. To, to its credit, by, by giving us cheap goods, it allows us money for other things. But you're right, it starves out the mom and pops. There's no doubt about it. Economists would say, okay, 
these big box stores or the big internet retailers uh, save us a lot of money for, that can go into investment. All that is true macro, but it's bad for our community. It's bad for the people we know in our communities and towns. And uh, it's the price of modernization. And the COVID has hurt us in so many ways, and that's one of them. Uh, it just uh, it, it, it probably cost the election. It cost a lot of things. So I just feel terrible about it. I, I, you know, Annie, I'm not exactly Mr. Upper today, am I? You know? Uh, but I well, see I know nothing Curtis good here. So I see Curtis has a question for you. Go ahead, Curtis. Actually, it was just a comment. I was going to add that um, another reason why they felt they had to oust Trump is because I believe had he gotten back in, he would have went after the corporations that you, you know that you mentioned and and went to break them up. On oh, the antitrust, you know. Absolutely. I knew. I know absolutely. he was going to do that. Yeah, whether it's antitrust or just corruption, Curtis, you're absolutely right. He had a lot of people in his sights, and especially people that are trying to deplatform conservatives. They would have had hell to pay, but they got him. They got him before he got them, and that's really the whole idea of corruption. That's what they're doing with Rudy. They're trying to get him and Trump before those forces get them. So it's a, it's a very dirty game, and you'll see it. It's the same theme over and over again, starting with Hillary's uh, deal on the Russian collusion. That worked. That worked. It kept uh, Trump off balance for three years, kept the country in turmoil. And there are still people that still say he's guilty of it. So it's really, really bad. Um, I am running into a hard stop, Annie, right okay. about now. If I can right. fly off, I'd love that. But you are my favorite, and Curtis is great <laughs> talking to you. Huh? Yeah. Well, we'll Appreciate have you back that. soon. We'll have you back okay, soon, take, John. And people take should care. get your book, which is post oh, yeah. How the Washington Post. Yes. The, 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 yes. You yeah, know. thank you. If, you, if they the go book. on to, that's right, if they go on to postgatebook.com, I also have a podcast, Mysteries of Watergate, which the price is right, Mysteries of Watergate, The Mysteries of Watergate, any podcast, and then postgatebook.com, you can get the podcast and a deal on my book. So, All right, uh, So do that. All right, take care of yourself now. You Stay too, All right. All right, John O'Connor, check him out, Postgate book. It is called Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan Advocacy Journalism. Woo, you say that all in one deep breath. You know, there, there was so much more, Curtis, I wanted to talk with him about because um, Biden's uh, administration is now trying to get Department of Homeland Security to get various private corporations, different companies, uh, to spy on us. They want to look for, quote, extremists. You know, and what is an extremist? A Tea Party person? An Oath Keeper? I don't know. Uh, Be somebody like me. Yeah. Somebody like Proud me. Boy? <laughs> um, yeah. A conservative? A Republican? Outspoken a black conservative? conservative. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A, talk, a podcaster? This is this is some scary stuff, uh, but we're coming up in a few minutes for you to call our next guest. But you know, there's, 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 it's crazy out there. There's so much more I wanted to talk to him about. Did you hear? Because you're in Florida, uh, out of uh, South Miami, 
there is a group of Democrats that are trying to block a sale of a local Spanish language radio, which wants to sell the station to a conservative ownership group. And this Democratic group uh, has wrote to them, asking them to block this sale. It is WSUA AM, also known as Caracol 1260. It's also on the FM uh, W232DX, which also rebroadcasts back to WS, uh, WSUA. And these lawmakers are saying that the sale uh, would be overtly conservative, so the FCC should be the speech police and block the sale. And that's not what the FCC does. I mean, they don't side no, with the Democrats or Republicans, they say, all right, you know, as long as it's fair and free speech, it's fine. It's not pornography that you're broadcasting. That's fine. You're not advertising or advocating uh, for the overthrow of the government. It's fine. You're not advocating for violence and anarchy. It's fine. But because it's in Miami, it's the Hispanic vote that the Democrats are losing in droves, they want to protect their turf. And no, you cannot go on our turf, that's supposed to be Democrat, and talk conservative talk. How dare you? That's how crazy they it's must, They must think that um, the fairness doctrine is in play right now, you know, when it comes to radio, because that's what they've been after all along, you know, because of the success of conservatism on the radio shows. Um, like Rush and and um, Mark Levin, Michael Savage, and and whatnot. But you know, just like the Democrats went to the courts for everything, I think we need to to ramp it up. And I know we haven't had a lot of success in the courts, but we still have to keep challenging these people in the legal sense. You know, when they come up with things like this that um, impacts our constitutional rights. So that's that's my remedy for this, you know, just take it and fight it, you know, and hopefully, because I can't believe that every judge is corrupt in our system. There has to be some true um, conservative judges out there and constitutional judges, you know. That's my spin on it, and I'm going to call our next guest. No, you don't even have to. He's right here up in oh, okay. our studio. I'm going to bring okay. him in on the line. want to welcome back to the show right-to-work expert, Mark Mix. Good afternoon, Mark. Welcome back. Uh, good to be back with you, Annie. Thanks for the opportunity. Appreciate it. Oh, man. It is a crazy, crazy world. I mean, no matter what subject you talk, talk about today, whether it's HR1 or Giuliani being raided at 6 a.m. in the morning with the New York Times or the tales of the FBI SWAT team, it, it, the whole world seems like it's upside down. Now we throw in the unions because they're losing power. And, oh, boy, do you have your hands full, sir. Well, indeed we do. You know, the one thing that is number one on our radar screen is a bill that's already passed the House of Representatives. It's in the Senate right now, and Chuck Schumer is waiting for it to get its 50th co-sponsor. The bill is designed to repeal all 27 right-to-work laws across the country. And just to recap, those laws are very simple. They protect workers' rights to join unions, but they also protect workers' rights not to join or pay dues or fees to a union to get or keep a job in America. 27 states have decided that's the policy they want for their workers. 
Um, but unfortunately, Joe Biden, Chuck Schumer, and Nancy Pelosi disagree. And so they want to give union officials the ability to compel workers to pay them a fee for the right to work in America. And so not only that to top it off, but there's lots of other stuff, too, that we can talk about. And, and you're right. It seems like well, the world's uh, upside down. Well, I, I, I left the New York state to come to a right-to-work state here down in South Carolina. And a matter of fact, there was a huge hoopla at one point in New York City with the New York City police with the PBA, the police teeth and backwards, Police Benevolent Association. And there were members in our precinct that said, I'm not paying the PBA a penny in dues. And it was their right to say, but you have to understand if you do that, you're not going to have the representation if you get yourself jammed up. But you do that knowingly, knowing what is the pros and the cons. But the unions don't want you to make an informed decision, to make an independent decision. They want to be able to control you Controlling you, they control the dollars coming into the union so they can get their gold toilets in their offices. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. You know, unfortunately, unions have gone from voluntary organizations back when Samuel Gompers was the head of the AFL to a an organization now that relies on government power, whether it be the uh, the bureau or the borough chiefs in New York City or the the congressmen and senators and uh, congresswomen and senators in in the United States House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. They rely on government for their power, and that power always resonates down and always reduces down to more power for union officials and less power for American workers. I mean their labor policy is predicated on their ability to force people to associate with them and then to add insult to injury to force this association to make them pay fees for that forced association. It's good. It's wrong policy. It's wrong for Americans. It's wrong for the unions, frankly. If they were out there providing services to workers and doing the things they should be doing instead of playing politics all the time, I think workers would love to join unions and love to have their voice amplified by union officials. But you have like the New York uh, unions and the Boston unions. I mean something just came up about Marty Walsh, the new secretary of labor and how he withheld information about uh, a patrolman who was uh, charged with molesting a young person and then ended up being the union president, and now he's under investigation for multiple counts of that particular behavior. I mean, this stuff doesn't make anybody, whether you're on the beat or you're a taxpayer, happy, and, and it's unfortunate that they've gotten this power. No, it is really. At one point in our nation's history, unions were necessary because we had sweatshops. We had horrible, horrible conditions for workers of these large corporations. You know, there was a point in time when they were necessary, but we have so many new laws and regulations in place, they no longer are necessary. You know, what, what's the biggest thing they're going to do? Negotiate a pay raise? Well, Annie, you're right. I mean, you're right about the history. And, and I would, you know, I have a little different take on it. I mean, certainly to your point, there was a time when unions were absolutely necessary. And I believe they're still necessary today. And they will be necessary in the future, but there's no place for compulsion or force in that equation. I mean, for example, if an employer today uh, starts misusing or misrepresenting or, or abusing employees, then they ought to have the right to join together voluntarily to amplify their voice. And, and that's something that, that is ingrained in federal law. It has been since the 1930s. 
But the other part of that equation is the force and the compulsion, and that makes union officials lazy. In fact, Gompers, you know, he was here during that time period you're talking about, and, and one of the things they did was create the guilds that, used, that protected workers, and he knew that the delegates of the AFL were going to go to Congress back in the late 1920s and or mid-1920s, and his final speech to the AFL in El Paso, Texas in 1924, he said – the workers of America adhere to voluntary institutions, and anything else is a menace to their rights. And he said it will rip apart that which together, through voluntarism, is inherently stronger than anything that's forced together through compulsion. And Gompers is right then, he's right today, and he'll be right in the future when it comes to workers having a voice in the workplace, but it has to be voluntary. It can't be a private organization that says, join me, pay me, or lose your job. Now, there's something about being an American that the second you say you must, the hair goes up on the back of our neck and we step away and go, wait a minute, there's a problem here. The second you tell me I must comply, you're not going to get me to comply. Yeah, that, yep, that's the compulsion. And, you know, there's things that uh, are in the very, they're very founding documents of the country that talk about freedom of association. And you can't have the right to associate with not, without having the right not to associate. I mean, it just, logically, it doesn't exist. But yet labor policy in America, to your point, Annie, contemplates this notion of you must. You must associate. You must pay fees. You must associate with this union and this private organization. And that doesn't work, and it hasn't worked for unions. In fact, you know, one of the reasons unions complain about them losing power or losing members is really wholly a part of how they operate. You know, join me or else. That doesn't make much sense. No, it's the old boys club, too. And if you don't join or if you start to make any noise, we're going to put our boot on the neck. The violence, the coercion uh, to force people to do things that is against their nature. And that's a huge problem here. How, you can't even have an open vote. You've got to, you, you have to turn around, you know, secret vote, no, no secret ballot. We're telling you how to vote, and if you don't, we're going to come to your house. We're going to intimidate you and your family. Yeah, and, and that's, part of, that's part of that bill that I mentioned earlier that includes the repeal of the right-to-work laws. There's a, a change in how you cast your, your votes, and you know, we went through that battle several years back um, that basically was going to completely eliminate the secret ballot. That the, you know, if a union could come to your doorstep at you know, maybe 8.30, 9.30, 10.30, 11.30 at night with a couple of folks and you know, knock on the door and, and say, hey, you need to sign this piece of paper, um, you know, that's – pretty intimidating. And, and I'll tell you what, having the secret ballot, I mean, the, the Amazon facility in Bessemer, Alabama is a perfect example. They voted by secret ballot, albeit by mail, for a two-month election period, but only 12%, 12.7% of the entire eligible work unit voted for unionization at that facility. And if you'd listen to the president, uh, President Biden, who made a video about it, and international leaders quote-unquote leaders across the country and, and newspapers and big media said, you know, this is so outrageous, there's got to be a union there. 12.7% of the workers voted for unionization in that facility. It, it, it's amazing when the American spirit does come out, it, it, what we actually do believe in, and it's not what these guys are. Now, it, I found this really curious now because um, we've had this pandemic now for a year and a half. Um, we've had the schools on lockdown. And we've seen the protests of teachers going, oh, I'm going to get sick if I open up the classroom. The kids are going to give me the COVID virus. Yeah, but, but the teacher unions 
are now, we know, colluding with the CDC to keep this lockdown and keep kids out of the classroom. We have a whole generation of children that have lost a whole year of their life. They'll never get back. They will never develop the way a normal child has. This is outrageous. Yeah, Annie, and, and unfortunately, the, the reality is, and, and you've, you've identified it, we now know that it, the American Federation of Teachers, the AFL-CIO affiliate, was talking with the CDC, talking with the White House, and actually creating the, uh, the standards upon which schools would reopen. You know, they don't follow the science. They follow political science, and that's, there's a big difference. You know, they have used this crisis to their advantage to get demands and get bailed out and have states that are, you know, have been mismanaged for decades, get money to resupport them, you know, based on the so-called COVID relief. It's really been unfortunate, not only for taxpayers, but for kids. I mean, I've got a daughter who is, is in her senior year, Annie. I mean, I remember my senior year, the last time I saw some of my friends that I grew up with and, and that kind of special time that was a senior year. And now, you know, she can't be there. And, we're waiting for graduation here in a couple of weeks and she has been in the classroom for maybe full time for the last, you know, three or four weeks. It's really sad, but you're right with the elementary style children, it's even more dramatic because you're right. That time frame, that learning period, those formative years are very, very important. Now, certainly the government school system doesn't offer everything that we want. Um, and there's some things that we probably, uh, it's best that the kids haven't been there to learn, but certainly you're right. The social uh, process of being with friends and being with people your same age and interacting with people, all of that stuff's part of the educational process, and they've missed out on it, and they're going to suffer for it, no question. Yeah, the kids need guidance, a, a, a guiding figure, not the kid next to them that's going to be pulling the boogers out of his nose. They need <laughs> someone to, to lead them, to show them you know, what it is that you should be striving for. They also need to know how to interact socially, what is correct behavior, what is incorrect behavior, to be able to also read emotions and tell, by the way, a person is standing or looking at you, what that what they're trying to communicate to you, whether it's overt or not. You know, this is things that children need. And they're not getting it if they're isolated and stuck behind a mask and stuck behind a computer screen, where a lot of kids don't even have access to the Internet unless it's on their parents' cell phone. This, this is an atrocity. And the school unions refuse to budge. And what is it about? You know, they sit at home and get paid. So what is it? Is it free money? Is that what you want? Yeah, Annie, you know, we get a picture of what they want when you look at the, uh, the Los Angeles Teacher Union situation at the Unified School District in Los Angeles. You know, they were holding out for defunding the police. They were holding out for Medicaid for all. They were holding out for a whole bunch of political issues that had nothing to do with educating children. Um, the teachers in Illinois, same thing. You know, they, they demanded that they get to the front of the line for, for the shots. They did. They got there. They did that. And they still won't go to work. They're threatening to strike. At least they were two weeks ago. You know, Lori Lightfoot, who's no friend of freedom and individual rights, said, you know, quote, we're out of runway here. And she started to get tough. But even then, she backed down to the teachers union because of the power, both political and kind of monetary policy of power that they have in that school district. And unfortunately, 
union officials have been given way too much power over our government. And, you know, Franklin Roosevelt talked about it back in the 1930s when they when the federal government grabbed power over the private sector workforce. He was asked, you know, shouldn't we unionize the government? He said, no way. It's unthinkable we would do that. It's not the same. And he was right then and he's right today. And what we're seeing is an exercise of this power by this private organization that's been granted unbelievable privilege to control the schools, to control local government, to control, you know, government that you, that is you and I, Annie, that's we the people. They've been put in a position that's higher than the power that we have to redress our government. And it's not working. It hasn't worked in New York. It hasn't worked in California. It doesn't work in Connecticut or Illinois, or it doesn't work really anywhere, uh, frankly. And we're seeing the result of that power during this particular last year and several months. Well, you opened the door to what I was going to lead you into, because at one point in time, uh, government employees, it was illegal for them to unionize, uh, especially the federal employees, because when you, you vote for uh, getting, you actually become your own boss, so you vote for your own <laughs> pay raise, you know, but there is a, a Do Your Job Act, and this I found was phenomenal, because um, there's legislation that would ensure public employees do the jobs the taxpayers are paying them to do. And it is, it is unconscionable that you have federal employees working full-time on union stuff. And I was amazed at what it really cost us. And this, was, this problem traces back to Jimmy Carter, the Civil Service Reform Act of 78. We, it cost us in 2019 2.6 million hours of federal labor, which totals $163 million of our taxpayer dollars. We're paying someone doing a federal job, whether it's collating files or just manning the, the desk at the front of the federal courthouse. No, instead of doing the job that they were hired to do, they're instead doing federal business, which means a different federal employee has to be hired to do the job they're supposed to be doing. This is crazy. Yeah, you know, the, the so-called official time that they get to take off to do union work. I mean, President Trump did a little bit about that. A couple of agencies said they can't do it anymore. And, of course, immediately upon Biden taking office, those regulations were withdrawn uh, for most agencies. And now they're back to paying union officials to do union work as opposed to the work that they were hired to do for the government. It really is a mess. And the Do Your Job Act is a bill that was introduced in the House. And, and whether or not Pelosi will bring it up is, is highly doubtful. But you're right. The point is taxpayers have no idea that there's a whole group of folks out there that are working basically full-time doing union work. They're not doing the work that they were hired for, and we're paying for that. I mean, they would say, well, we've got to, you know, we've got to represent these people in the workplace. Well, no, you really don't. I mean, if, you want, if you're going to have a union there and you're going to collect union dues and you're going to have union fees and union money, then use union money to do union work. I mean, that's the whole idea, one would think. But you know, with this new administration in place, I have a sense that not only will it, it resume, but it will expand without any doubt, Annie. The shades of, of Governor Cuomo, hey, you know, you're working uh, state government jobs, so you're going to be uh, typing out my book for me, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, well, no, didn't he say that no one helped him with that, 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 that there was absolutely no help, that he earned the entire $4 million or whatever that was? I forget what the story was there, but he, he was – adamant about no one no one helping him. He did the whole thing himself and when the, with the uh, kerosene lamp on his desk at one in the morning, I suspect. 
Oh, yeah, that's, that's like that poster and how he battled COVID single-handedly that he had on the New York State official government website. But he was selling it for 20 bucks, and the money was going into his campaign. Oh, yeah, we got really honest government officials here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it is a crazy, crazy world out there that you actually have to pass legislation against union violence. You know, you would think the simple assault and battery laws that we have nationwide, you know, each state carries, also federal carries, should be sufficient to prevent violence from unions, but it's not. So you have to pass yeah. another legislation just to protect people from the very union they're being forced to join. So, you know, pay me yeah, money right, and I'll Annie. beat you up anyway. Yeah, that's right. There, you, This is an amazing story, and people can't believe it when they hear it. But back in 1973, the United States Supreme Court in a case called Enmons, E-N-M-O-N-S, was decided that said that union officials could not be prosecuted for acts of violence that were used to achieve legitimate union objectives. That's literally what the Supreme Court said. So basically, union officials are exempt from the racketeering and extortion laws that you and I are subject to. And frankly, they use this defense when there's actual violence. They're trying to you know, organize a place or they're trying to get the contract demands met in a, in a negotiation, and they actually coordinate violent campaigns. They can't be prosecuted under federal law like you and I can. And unfortunately, several states have laws like that too. I mean, there's, Annie, there's pictures of state policemen sitting on the hoods of their cars with cups of coffee and cigarettes watching you know, militant union mine workers destroying cars and property on minefields because they can't do anything until the governor says, okay, go enforce the law. I mean, this is really an amazing story about privilege for a very unique group of people. And when I, use, when I say unique, I'm using my finger quotes because it, it really is dangerous, to your point. I mean, when you can actually have the ability to use violence, extortion, and racketeering techniques and be exempt from prosecution for that if it's, quote, a legitimate union objective, that's really, really amazing power. And, yeah, we have a bill that will be introduced called the Freedom from Union Violence Act that will actually go in to the Hobbs Act and change the language there and, and bring union officials under, uh, accountable under that law just like you and I would be. Well, now, if you remember back to, was it the 2012 elections up in uh, New England, there was this one guy that was selling the uh, Gadsden flags. Uh, the guy's name was Gaffney, and that was attacked and beaten to a bloody pulp by SEIU members. Did anything ever happen? You heard maybe one person was arrested, but you never heard anything else out of that? This is what this act would protect us from, such, such wanton violence. Yeah, yeah, Annie, was that, was that the story where the union official put his hat on that guy and that was the signal to beat the bajikers out of him? If I recall correctly, that story, yeah. I, I mean, we've got a case up in Boston right now, a case in, in Buffalo, New York, where the defense that, that the lawyers are using for union officials is this, the Edmonds decision. They, they actually use it as part of the defense in the courtroom saying, you know, look, we can't be prosecuted because we're, we're trying to get you know, legitimate union objectives here, so we can't be held responsible for these acts of violence. I mean – Fortunately, there are some states that, where they can be prosecuted for this criminal behavior. But when you see, for example, I don't know if you remember the daily news strike in New York. I mean, you know, basically oh, yeah. what happened was union, yeah, union officials went around and firefighters went around and they told the strikers, they said, look, if you're going to burn a truck, make sure you open the door so it burns faster. Remember those stories? 
Well, a guy oh, yeah. wrote a story about that. Richard Vigilante wrote a book called Strike, about that particular strike. And I remember there was a picture of Mario Cuomo, then governor, standing up in front of the, 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 the building, the Daily News building, with about 300 uniformed police officers standing up there. He was given a, given a speech about, you know, stick together in solidarity. And so the, the security agent at the building called, called the FBI and said, look, you know, when the police are out front of your building protesting, who do you call? And the FBI agent in the New York office said, look, we can't call us because of Edmonds. There's nothing we can do about this. I mean, that's outrageous. That's outrageous. Well, matter of fact, that Newsday building was on Stewart Avenue in Garden City. It sat directly next door to the first margin of the Marine Corps base uh, that my husband at the time, my first husband, was stationed at. And just down the street from Garden City Bowl, where I used to work, I know that area. I was right smack in the heart of that at that time. Holy cow. But that's the power of the union there. And it is, it, and they were. It just opened the doors. I remember that very vividly. You know, it's like yeah. <laughs> I went to the college down the street from there. But the unions have have actually been given unfettered power. But it's, it's for the workers. It, 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 no, no, no. You don't understand. We're doing this for the workers. No, they're doing it to line their pockets and for political power. That's what they're doing it for. It's not for the workers. Because when you come down to the bottom line. Um, when workers go to get their benefits, it's like, uh, you didn't complete all of this or you didn't do this or that, so you're not eligible. I've seen that yeah. time and time again. Yeah, yeah. That, and, you know, one of, one of the places where that's most prevalent is, for example, the Teamsters Union, where someone had been working for the Teamsters for years and they, they're out and, and they vested in their pension and they go get another job. They get a non-union job. They immediately get their vesting revoked, and they can't get benefits anymore. I mean, we get people that call us all the time with questions like that and comments like that, and it's really unfortunate. And in the construction industry, people that are in the construction industry, in the hiring halls, they'll go work a job because they need a little extra money for something, and uh, some some union official will find out, and then immediately uh, their benefits are withdrawn. I mean, Annie, it, it really is unfortunate, and again, it's a result of their ability to have political power. It's not about, you know, workers. I mean, there are workers that want to be part of a union. There are unions out there that are representing their workers and doing good work, but there are bad apples, and no doubt about it. I mean, just look at the United Auto Workers. Last week, uh, Dennis Williams, the past president of the UAW, or the second last past president, I mean, he basically is looking at two years in prison. Uh, uh, Ten other UAW officials, high-ranking union officials, two former presidents, are either in jail or on their way to jail because they had this wonderful privilege to force these workers to pay them, and that manifested itself in $400 bottles of champagne and cash stuffed, in, stuffed into golf bags and, and vacation villas in Palm Springs and you know $60,000 worth of cigars. You had a federal prosecutor up in Detroit that said they were basically extorting money from workers, and they were stealing rank-and-file members' money. And they weren't even really held accountable until someone found out about it, to, you know, and they started investigating it. And the UAW, some of their members stood up and said, you know, this is wrong. And now, unfortunately, they, you know, they've got a decree where the federal government's going to oversee them for the next, what, I think, six years. Um, but it's, this is about power, and when they had that type of power, it does end up generally in corruption, and that's the problem. That is. Now, I had to tell you, my father-in-law had worked for a construction union, and he was raising a family. He was an immigrant, and he ended up working a second-side job. They found out about it, and they yanked all of his benefits. I mean, he, yeah. he retired, and he got no pension whatsoever. I 
dated a guy that was working construction, and they gave him just so many hours. And then just when he would be eligible for his benefits, they cut him off. They say, no, no, we got someone else, we got to move in to give them some hours. So he never quite reached that goal where he would obtain those benefits. And they play so many different tricks. But you also mentioned forced fees. And that's another uh, 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 bill that you're trying to work on. You know, the fee for grievance scheme is that what you were talking about. Yeah. Yeah, we've got a we got a right to work bill um, in uh, Senator Rand Paul's introduced in the Senate. Congressman Joe Wilson has introduced it in the House. It's uh, House Bill uh, 1275 and Senate Bill 406. And Annie, literally, it's a one page bill. I mean, I know that sounds really peculiar in these days of 2,300 page bills that you have to pass in order to know what's in them. This is literally a one page bill. Doesn't add a single word to federal labor law. It simply goes into uh, the federal labor policy was passed in the 1930s, and it takes the compulsion out. It takes the forced unionism out, and it establishes voluntary unionism across the country. I mean, it doesn't stop anyone from joining a union. doesn't stop anyone from giving their entire paycheck to a union, but it will not contemplate you losing your job because you don't pay dues or fees to a labor union. It's really that simple. And, you know, if, if you ask a union official about it, it's the end of the world. It's the end of the work world, and workers will die because, you know, right to work is passed. And it's so ridiculous. And to your point earlier on, I mean, they just – they don't believe that, that anybody's capable of thinking for themselves or doing for themselves. And so what you're supposed to do is sit back, shut up, and let them do things for you. And what they do for you in many cases, you know, sometimes is beneficial, but other times, like those folks at the UAW – that uh, were wa- that watched 11 of their top, top executives go to jail uh, or on their way to jail at this point, I mean, those are questions that I would start asking. Why do my dues go to pay for all that stuff? And not only pay for the, for the corruption, but pay for their legal fees too, it turns out. You know, um, I, I love uh, Congressman Joe Wilson. I know him, and he knows me. And He used to be my congressman, and uh, his son is our state attorney general, and I'm friends with both of them. They do, Joe, you lie, Wilson. <laughs> oh, I remember that one. <laughs> yeah, he's a great guy. He understands the issue very well. It's a, you know, and he's it's it's really really straightforward. He gets it, and of course, South Carolina has benefited dramatically from their right to work status. I mean, you're you're yeah. an aircraft oh, manufacturer, you're tire manufacturing, yeah. you got automobiles, you got. I mean, it's a great story Toyota. in South Carolina. Yeah, that's yeah. right. It's a great story Toyota, there. Mercedes, and the right to work state. Yep. Yeah. BMW, BMW's made yeah. there, yeah. yeah. And we're yeah. soon going to have a port down in Jasper, which will bring in even more jobs. Uh, I know we only have a few minutes left with you, but this this is what disturbs me, because besides being a business owner, manager, and now doing this, but I am a retired cop on top of all that, and I'm seeing that they're trying to get a, a monopoly bargaining bill, and that's not good. If you try to unionize law and firefighters nationwide, if you've got a small little podunk town, you can't have the same rules as you have, say, like the city of New York or Miami or Los Angeles. It's impossible. So how are you going to make yeah. it a nationwide union for all firefighters and police officers? That's crazy. Yeah, Annie. Yeah, it really is. This is a bill that we've seen a couple of times before. It's passed in the House. It passed in the House a couple of years back. And it's interesting because what it says is says the federal government is going to impose unionization on 
the entire country. And what they say is that every state, every municipality must meet four core standards. And those standards are you must have bargaining, you must have this, you must have that. And, you know, it's interesting, Annie, with the change in the ideas of some of the regressive leftists, the bill's been reintroduced, but guess who's been left out now? The police officers. Now it's for firefighters and EMTs because, you know, the left doesn't like police officers now, right? Um, they're, they're, <laughs> on, they're against police officers now. So, so the bill is only for firefighters and EMTs now, and, and the firefighters are left to fend for themselves. But it's, it's so political, it's just crazy. They, you know, they want the – the good news is, is that in the government sector now – a no government employee anywhere in America can be forced to pay dues or fees to keep their job to work for the government. We won a U.S. Supreme Court case. I think you and I have talked about this in the past called Janus v. Asme back in 2018. We're coming up on the third anniversary of that that basically says that you know, the, the forced payment of fees is a violation of the First Amendment of the Constitution. Imagine that, Annie. We finally got the court to say that a forced payment of fees to a private organization is a violation of the First Amendment. We finally, after 40 years of litigating it, six cases, a particular uh, issue that went to the Supreme Court, and each time the court tried to slice the bologna thinner and thinner and thinner. And finally, when we got there back in 2018, there was nothing left to slice except for First Amendment protections. We finally won that. That doesn't mean that union officials aren't, you know, trying to work around it and force workers to sign cards that make them pay fees. And, you know, once you pay the fee, you can't get out until the second blue moon in the month of December. Um, you know, you've got to hit it just right. You've got to make sure you wake up at midnight. If you see the moon, you can go down to the union hall with your ID and you can say, I want to get out. And uh, maybe they'll let you out if someone's there to listen to you or open the door. But it's been – we've been making progress on this front. But, yeah, that idea that they're going to, by federal decree, they're going to force everyone across the country, all the states, to recognize unions for purposes of bargaining on behalf of firefighters and EMTs is really, really a power grab. And Biden's been pushing for that, and so are you know, Schumer and so are Pelosi. So what does it have? Everyone's starting at the same pay, rate, pay grade. So you've got like a little Mayberry town where they may only have two officers uh, or two firefighters. Uh, compared to a salary that you'd be paying out of New York City. This is crazy. I just want to leave uh, people with one last thought with you and and direct them to your website, the National Right to Work Committee, that uh, West Virginia passed the right to work law and paychecks grew. So wherever we get the right to work, (laughs) you get a better pay and better benefits than if you had a union bargaining for you. That's right, Annie. When you compare states with right-to-work laws versus states with, not right, with no right-to-work laws, and you look at actual disposable income, when you adjust for cost of living, because your point about living – I think living in New York was more expensive than living in South Carolina. I'm just guessing. Is that true or not? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. So, so when, you compare the, when you compare New York to South Carolina, you have to adjust for cost of living. And so when you do that, if we find out that workers in right-to-work states have about $4,600 more to spend in disposable income than workers in forced union states, it just makes sense. Union officials don't like to talk about it. They won't run the numbers that way. They say that, look, you're a union man in New York. You make more money than a non-union worker in Utah. And the fact is that's true. You, you, your pay is higher. But what, how, how, how does that work out for you when it comes to renting an apartment or buying a home or you know, taking care of a family? I mean, it doesn't work out very well in New York City. It works out quite well in the right-to-work state of Utah. Absolutely. Well, Mark, it has been a pleasure. It's always fun speaking with you, and we've got to have you back on soon. Your website is the National Right to Work Committee. Uh, you've got it's just 2.8 million member uh, policy organization. Uh, so thank you, and God bless you for the hard work you do. 
Annie, thanks for all you're doing, too. Appreciate what you've done and what you're doing. So appreciate that. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you. God bless. Mark Mitz. Check him out. National Right to Work Committee. I want to welcome on to the show from the Heritage Foundation, Sarah Perry. Good afternoon, Sarah. How are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me. And uh, this show has been going so fast, I can't believe we're down to our last half hour. Whoa. Um, you, you work a lot on um, uh, certain issues dealing with religion and violence and stuff. There is a Religious Freedom Restoration Act that you have been uh, talking about. Explain to us what that is, because we assume the, sec- the First Amendment guarantees our right of freedom of religion, but it's been challenged over and over and over again, and we have to keep on fighting for it. Yes, absolutely. And it cannot be overstated that there is currently legislation pending in the Senate called the Equality Act that for the first time in legislative history would be a a situation in which RIFRA or the Religious Freedom Restoration Act would be completely eviscerated. It is the first time that the Senate has taken up a bill in which there is an outright repudiation of the very important RIFRA bill that we take so much protection from. Yes, we do have protections of the First Amendment, but Congress, in its wisdom back in 1993, with an overwhelming majority in both chambers, passed a piece of legislation that fixed what it deems to be a fatal flaw in one of the Supreme Court decisions from the same era. It was a decision called Employment Division versus Smith, and it eliminated what we had used up to that point as sort of a strict scrutiny analysis. In other words, the government can burden someone's religious liberty only to the extent that it does so as narrowly as possible and to further advance a compelling state interest. That standard was eliminated in Employment Division versus Smith, and so Congress responded by saying, really, we believe that this is such a critical balancing test, and it is such an appropriate measure of what the government's involvement ought to be, which is to say very, very little in matters of religion, that we're going to pass an act through both chambers, and it had overwhelming bipartisan Support. It actually passed in the Senate by 98 to 1 voting margin. It was absolutely uh, unquestionably supported. Now, of course, we see some of the greatest proponents of the RIFRA at that time turning coat right now, including the ACLU, who was very much behind the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and pushing to advance the Equality Act, which would completely eviscerate RIFRA altogether for the first time in history. So we wrote this paper, my colleague Tom Jipping and I, to explore a little bit about the RIFRA's history, why it was important, why we needed it above and beyond simply the protections of the First Amendment of the Constitution, which so many of us are familiar with, but why really it was an appropriate use of statutory authority on Capitol Hill and a matter in which Congress decided we are unpleased, we're displeased with what we're seeing coming out of the Supreme Court at that time. 
We do believe that they are coming closer to encroaching on individual rights to free exercise and freedom of religion. And so RIFRA was the result. So we wrote this document, this legal memo, to give some of our readers a sense of sort of what the history was that led to its passage, but where it stands now. And where it stands now is a very, very threatened piece of federal legislation. Well, we've seen over the last couple of years, as a matter of fact, I've been doing this show now going on 11 years. I think I'm like one or two shows away from my thousandth episode. Um, but I've, I've seen, as I follow this, the erosion of our religious liberty. You know, it goes back yeah. to whether or not you bake a cake for a gay couple for their wedding. Uh, there was that case in New Jersey where a gay couple wanted, uh, same-sex couple, I should say, uh, to be politically correct, uh, wanted to have their marriage ceremony performed on property that was owned by a church. And the church said, no, this is our property, and we don't believe in same-sex marriage, so we're asking you not to do it. And it ruled against the church. We've seen it time and time and time again, where they've been eroding at our religious freedoms. And now it's gotten so far with this pandemic, no, you can't gather, or if you do gather, it's only 25 people, blah, blah, blah. You see whole congregations no longer gathering because of the attack on religious liberty, and it it, it has gotten out of hand. Absolutely, and I think there has been not only on Capitol Hill with the Equality Act, which is its own form of sort of a – an assassination of religious liberty and traditional orthodox beliefs on human sexuality and gender identity that so many religions hold, not just Christianity, but Judaism and uh, orthodox um, Islam and other faiths in which there is a traditional sex binary, there is the traditional recognition of heterosexual marriage as the cultural and religious ideal. So we're not just getting it from Capitol Hill, but you very wisely mentioned what's transpiring right now in terms of the pandemic. And the Supreme Court has recently recognized that out of California, not surprisingly, because we know Governor Newsom is sort of noted for his hostility toward organized religion and particularly toward Christianity, they've recognized the fact that the government's implication and its infection in religious liberty environments has really gotten out of hand with the pandemic and that there has been open hostility. If you can operate restaurants and you can operate movie theaters with certain social distancing guidelines, you are not permitted to close churches or centers of worship indefinitely if they are capable of holding the same social distancing and health regulation applications. But the pandemic in and of itself came at a time where there was sort of a slipping sense overall of what Americans believed to be the importance of religious liberty. After the Obamacare Affordable Care Act attack that came through that conscience mandate, we remember back in 2010, there was the Little Sisters of the Poor case. We remember Hobby Lobby, the Hobby Lobby. These were a series of cases, all of which centered on the conscience mandate. So they were chipping away constantly at the foundation of religious liberty and the ability to live and work and practice one's faith altogether. What we're seeing is sort of this incrementalism where we are being told that religion is suitable for us, the faithful, 
if we keep our religion behind closed doors. We are not allowed to practice it in the public square. And heaven forbid, we should operate it within a place of business or the public square, in which case we'll obviously pass government regulations telling you to close your doors, or we will propose legislation that guts your capability to speak out on a certain matter altogether. But a majority of Americans now, particularly the younger generation, not the millennials as we know them, but generations Y and Z coming up, hold a decreasing value of organized religion in public life. So we're seeing social trends in addition to legislative trends, in addition to Supreme Court precedent, that all together I think sort of works in concert to chip away at what we've sort of enjoyed all together and have taken for granted to a certain extent for the better part of two and a half centuries. You know, throughout my life, I've seen it chipped away. At first, it was no longer uh, prayer in school. It's a moment of silence. Um, If you had a religious club, they couldn't hold their meetings on school grounds because there has to be separation of church and state. That's not in the Constitution. We all know that. And we see now, you used to have the sidewalk preacher. Uh Uh-uh, I can't do that. You're disturbing the peace. And we've seen it chipped away and chipped away and chipped away. And every time it happens, it's like we throw our hands up and go, ah, it's, it's not a lot. They're not asking yes. a lot. So what? Uh, but the moment we let them get their toe in the door, the next thing you know, they've got their whole shoulder, the whole body. They have now eviscerated us. And I had the pleasure of interviewing Phyllis Shafley just before she passed away. And we discussed, you know, in the interview, the Equality Act, or as I call it, the Inequality Act. And at that time, my state senator here in South Carolina was for it, and a highly libertarian and conservative guy. I have to tell you know if he's really conservative or really libertarian. And he and I had a week-long debate through emails. In the end, he understood from where I was coming from. That bill originated back in the 70s. And the idea is that when they used the word sex, it was understood there was male or female, not 69 different flavors of the rainbow. But if you read the bill now, you know, you can be a pedophile and be protected under the Equality Act. Uh, You could marry your tree and be protected under the Equality Act. Uh, They don't understand the danger of it. But, you know, it's supposed to be equality for everyone. No, it's ending up being inequality because the wrong class of people will be protected against criminal acts. And there's something, there's, there are really a few points that need to be made about the Equality Act for all of your listeners. The Equality Act makes 59 changes, substantive changes to federal anti-discrimination provisions in law. These are everything from jury service to uh, public accommodations to athletics in education to you name it. It takes the entire canon of American civil rights law and it takes the singular definition of sex, blows it out to sexual orientation and gender identity as well, then expands public accommodations. So the impact of that is not only greater from the standpoint of what sex means, but where it means that 
and then at the same time shrinks religious liberty and the ability to conscientiously object by gutting the Religious Freedom Restoration Act for the first time in legislative history. So this sort of trio of parables, as I like to call them, with the Equality Act really cannot be overstated because the impact on everyday Americans who have a conscience objection, not only to gender uh, identity and sexual orientation as being sort of outside of a biblical or a traditional Judeo-Christian paradigm, not just the sexuality and gender identity issues, but also issues involving the sanctity of life. And many people don't understand that there are also abortion implications with the Equality Act because pregnancy discrimination includes the failure to provide abortion-related services. So you are automatically sweeping into this entire maelstrom of the badness that is the Equality Act. You're including what is, what is also the notion of whether or not you can be a conscientious objector as a medical professor whether or not you can say, I refuse to perform an abortion. I refuse to prescribe abortifacients for self-aborting behavior. I refuse to provide gender identity medical services for an individual who comes to me. So the aspects in which this act would apply, and it is currently sort of languishing in the House uh, or in the Senate Judiciary Committee. We've held hearings on it. We are not hearing any rumblings. We do anticipate that it will most likely be taken up for vote in June because there are other current bills that are sort of pending on the table right now, including this uh, COVID-19 Anti-Hate Act that Maisie Hirono has proposed. So legislation like that has sort of preceded it. These are seen as sort of easy gets by the Democrats. So the Equality Act right now has a lot of concerns that have been articulated not just by Republicans, but even by some moderate Democrats, and we're encouraged by that. But we do know that most likely in June, this will be taken up for a vote. So people really need to do their homework on the fact that this is a very, very problematic piece of legislation. And we at the Heritage Foundation have written quite a, a great deal about this piece of legislation. Now, correct me if I'm right or wrong, but that act also in many ways will abrogate a parent's uh, responsibility. It would take away their ability to control what their child does or does not do. If that child at the age of five or six decides that because everyone else in school is saying that I'm a transgender, they're going to say, I'm a transgender, I want hormones. And the parents have absolutely no control. And then that child can be treated whichever way it chooses under this law. Yeah, that's a great, great point. Um, I actually wrote a piece about the Equality Act really becoming sort of a classroom bully, not only through forcing particular unscientific curriculum on gender identity and making SOGI the law of the land. And I have to say this, this is regardless of whether or not your children are in a religious school, because again, with a religious exemption that has been gutted through RIFRA and the failure of the Supreme Court to traditionally recognize teachers in Christian schools as ministers for a segment of the law in First uh, Amendment jurisprudence called uh, the ministerial exception that was addressed in the Hosanna-Tabor case, uh, we're seeing that even Christian schools will be impacted in this in this outcome. And essentially, we're not just looking at bad curriculum, meaning that 
the federal government can get involved if the Equality Act is passed and say, we're going to rectify past vestiges of discrimination. And to do so, we are going to involve ourselves in federal curriculum. Now, normally the federal government stays out of curricular matters, as you know, as they are designed to do by the Federal Education Organization Act. But what happens is that through the Equality Act, if you change what it means to discriminate on someone based on sex, and you also change it to mean sexual orientation and gender identity, well, if the courts decide, listen, we think these individuals have been discriminated against for too long in traditional human reproductive teaching in sex ed in schools, public or private, we're going to go in, we're going to tell you to make some curricular changes. And we know this because the Supreme Court and minor federal courts have done this already with the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1964 and Title VI, which is their ability to go in and say, listen, we're seeing sort of what's left over of the Jim Crow era and segregation in public schools. We want you to change your curriculum. We want you to talk about black history. We want you to talk about black inventors and black professors and historians. And this is wonderful. And we want this. But when you have conscientious objectors on issues involving gender identity and issues involving sexual orientation, because it goes to who they are in their faith and what they believe traditionally, then we have a major problem. That's when the courts overstep their boundaries. But our first problem is defeating the Equality Act. And yes, when you're talking about sort of divesting parents of their rights, we're not only seeing this happen already. So if your listeners believe it would just be passage of the Equality Act, oh my goodness. And I will say, I've, I've written recently about what's happening in Montgomery County, Maryland, which is just slightly north of where we are at the Heritage Foundation. In Montgomery County, there's a pending lawsuit because their school board policy indicates that they are to openly hide information from parents on transitioning students if the student says, listen, I don't have a supportive family at home. I don't feel comfortable talking about this with them yet. And so they allow the students to what's called socially transition. Use the bathroom you want, play on the sports team that you want, go by the pronoun you want, be called the name that you want, go in the bathroom, locker room, whatever the implications are. Teachers and administrators are already facilitating these kinds of changes. I will say Jay Clank, who lives out in Chicago, experienced this particular nightmare with his own daughter back around 2019, when his daughter, who is very high-functioning on the autism spectrum, and there is a correlation there between gender identity and high-functioning girls on the spectrum who are prepubescent, they don't feel the same. They feel different. They believe possibly gender identity is to blame. 30% of young prepubescent or pubescent girls who present with gender dysphoria have comorbid developmental diagnoses. So just let that sink in. But his daughter experienced this when the, a Chicago area school hid that social transition from he and his wife. We're seeing it now on the East Coast in Montgomery County. We've seen it in California. We've seen it in Nevada. So it's currently taking place. We don't need the horrible that is the Equality Act. This is why I would so encourage parents who are listening to this broadcast to be incredibly 
well-versed about what is transpiring at your child's school. You have a right under FERPA to examine your child's records at all times. And that includes notes that are entered in your child's file. So there, I have to tell you, this is really, really and truly, and I don't think this is an overstatement, a battle for the soul of America. We anticipated that this would be an onslaught in this administration of a particularly left-wing progressive worldview. I think some of us are stunned that it happened as quickly as it did. We are barely five months into this administration. Yeah, and you throw in the access to the World Wide Web, and these kids get online, and they go to these websites that tell them how to speak to your parents. It tells them how to hide the fact that you're doing what you're doing. It tells them how to get the hormones and arrange for surgeries without your parents knowing. And they, they tell them how to go through all these steps. And the parents have no idea until they get hit by a two-by-four, which is basically Absolutely. what happens when they find out. Uh, and in places like California and Maryland and New York, they help facilitate this for the kids. You know, you go tell yes. the teacher. The teacher says, well, I'm going to take you to the nurse. The nurse will tell you how to get the hormones, and we'll change your records so that you're no longer James, you're Jenny. Yes. You know, it is it's and, absolutely heartbreaking and prevalent. It's absolutely prevalent. The, the worst part is, it, historically, less than 1% of adolescents would end up experiencing gender dysphoria. And out of that, 90% by the time they graduate high school have decided if they're heterosexual or not. That number has grown exponentially. And most of them, 99% of them would be male having the gender yes. dysphoria. Now it's, ad, it's actually the reverse, where the vast majority are female and the minority are male. So it yes. begs to question whether or not this is another, uh, where, remember at one point all the girls had anorexia, uh, or the, yes. all the girls would get pregnant. And it's, it's the same thing. It's the mass female hysteria of high school kids. <laughs> it is. It is. And having a... a- teenage high school daughter of my own, um, one of two high schoolers with a junior high schooler uh, coming up very rapidly behind. I am very much in the thick of this phenomenon right now. And there's a very real uh, social dilemma called social contagion. And this is a, a verifiable um, phenomenon in which these young girls, and particularly young girls in their adolescence phases, that correlates with middle school and with high school are very, very prone to peer pressure. They are very prone to the imagery they ingest through social media, through movies and television. This is an electronic generation. Young females are very highly affected by the notion of this social contagion on gender identity. Abigail Schreier, who is a Wall Street journalist, who is independent, by no means identifies herself as a conservative, but strictly a truth seeker, wrote a book called Irreversible Damage, the Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. And it's become a runaway bestseller, but inexplicably, two months ago, it disappeared from the Amazon bestseller list and could not be found on Amazon's website. (laughs) And it wasn't until the hue and cry cry of some very powerful um, media moguls and even elected officials in national offices said, wait a minute, 
This is tantamount to book burning. You cannot do this. If it has ideas you don't like, you are free not to buy the book. But these are ideas that are subject to open scrutiny, dialogue, and sellable, you know, sort of activity as anybody else's activities are on Amazon. So there really is this very real notion of the rapid pace at which gender transitioning is taking place among this particular preteen to teenage population. And again, if left alone, you're absolutely right in that 85 to 90% of children presenting with symptoms of gender dysphoria settle into their birth sex by the time they graduate high school. Oh, shock and awe, because at that point, their brains are closer to being fully developed and they are not subject to the onslaught of peer pressure in close-knit environments that they are in middle school and high school. This is why this rush to medicalize what we're seeing as gender dysphoria, but is very often something undiagnosed that is a developmental de- delay or a mental health diagnosis. The rush to medicalization with cross-sex hormones, hormone suppression, and surgical intervention is absolutely heartbreaking to us. And what we're seeing more and more is this rate of detransitioning young women who finally reach their mid-20s, the euphoria has worn off of going through this transition and assuming a new identity, and they suddenly realize they were just as unhappy as they were before, and now they have the body mutilation to show for it, which is absolutely terrible. Right. There's so much more we can go into, but we're down to our last four minutes. And, Sarah, it has been such a pleasure. It is a joy to speak to you people over at the Heritage Foundation. And Tom sends us every week one of your wonderful people. And I, I, I love the work you guys are doing. And, man, I always have fun talking to you guys. I honestly do. Well, we are very busy. We are very busy. <laughs> I can see we're that. So we are so glad to be continually having things to say, and we feel very blessed to have the opportunity to say them. But my goodness, there is no shortage of work to be done right now. My children ask me, you're always on your computer. I said, listen, it's going to be that way at least for the next three and three quarter years. So <laughs> I would say the next two decades to get ourselves yes. out of this mess. <laughs> Well, Sarah, people can find you at heritage.org, and I I would love to have you back. There's so many more things to speak about. I would love to be back. Thanks for having me today. All right. God bless you for the hard work you do. Sarah Perry, check her out at heritage.org. And happy Mother's Day. All right. Anyway, Curtis, that's all that we got for today. We're down to our last few minutes, and we have a potential of you having cat Mac coming on next week. We're waiting for a confirmation on that. But we do also have Drew Allen, who is a Texas-bred, California-based conservative author and speaker uh, who is promoting conservative ideals. So we got a new guy coming in on uh, next week. So Carolyn, I wish her a happy Mother's Day. I will do so. (laughs) And you were a child today, Curtis. I mean, I got uh, in when I could. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to close off. Uh, we've got only like about two minutes left. I can't believe this. Holy cow, this whole show is going so fast. Uh, so I'm going to leave off with the uh, – okay, I'm going to close off with our Patriot Food Supply commercial. <laughs> so until then, we'll all see right. you all next week. And go to uh, 
my website, click on Patriot Food, and get yourself some supplies there. It's got a lot of great stuff over at Patriot Food. Good night. God bless, and happy Mother's Day to all y'all out there. Good night. When an emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is, run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan, to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? Let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. Well, if you want to insist, you can still go to 888-441-7290 or go to my website, Southern Sense, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. Be prepared. <laughs>